0: Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast which is all about hitting rewind on the bands and scenes we love. I'm Rick Martin and this is the point I'd normally introduce my co-host Sarah Jane Kemp, but she's on the injury list this week after what I'm going to call a minor bike-based mishap. Uh, Fear not, she's fine, she'll be back on the show soon. Um, But as they always say, kind of as one door closes another opens or whatever that saying is, And I guess Sarah's absence is allowing us to do something a bit different this week and look at uh, kind of a completely different band and scene that I think we ever have on the show before. Specifically, we're going to be talking all things Nirvana as the band's seminal 1991 album, Nevermind, turns 30 in a few months time. And, you know, on this show how we love an anniversary and a bit of uh, nostalgia. Um, And I guess on that nostalgia trip, I'm not alone this week, Uh, you know, as we kind of go back and look at the days of Kurt Cobain, played shirts and that renewed punk attitude of grunge. Uh, so this is probably a good chance to bring in this week's guest, which is uh, Mr. John Robb. Uh, thanks for joining me tonight, John.
1: No, it's good to hear from you hear your dulcet tones again, Rick.
0: <laughs> good to hear from you too. And uh, yeah, I'm sure you'd be like way too modest to agree with me on this. But for my money, there's no bigger Nirvana expert in the UK music press uh, than yourself. I mean, not least because you were the first. Is this right? The first UK journalist to interview the band when they were starting out. Or was it the first journalist overall?
1: Well, arguably the first overall. But it's, I mean, it's really always oh, really hard. It's like who he, he, he discovers who he discovered America it wasn't Christopher Columbus. There's people who are there, but when they did a book of all their interviews, I was the first interview in it, and I thought that that cannot be. Surely, some fanzine writer would have written about them in you know in Washington State or Seattle, but but apparently the people the people who did the book said no. Yours, what's the first? I mean, it's, and the thing about it was, I did the interview. And it took three months to so Sal to even print the thing, so it was even earlier mm. than the actual uh, publication date. I rang him up at his mum's house. So it's um which I still have the phone number and old address book. And it's one that, and it was such uh, old times, pre-tech, you couldn't even record the phone calls. So you had to handwrite it as, with the phone on, under your shoulder. <laughs> hmm. Right, but it was, It's not a very in-depth interview. It's a new band. You know, it's a band who'd, who'd, whose single was not out yet, but they had, a, uh, there's like a little cassette that the PR sent around the tracks on it. Anton was the yeah, PR. And most people say, no, well, they, sub pop have let themselves down you know mud honey's the band this isn't so good and i was going oh it's amazing this his voice is so captivating Mm. i mean i'm not i'm not saying i'm a great a&r person it's just something about those two songs on that cassette i just thought they were amazing so i had to go and get an interview with him and that's how that came about
0: and uh yeah obviously then you interviewed the band again and this time you managed to uh to record it for posterity and uh you're going to very kindly let us play a clip of that later on the show right
1: yeah yeah definitely we got there was a this is The thing is, I know probably you... I mean, I'm, obviously I'm older than you, so I was back in the time of cassettes when you interviewed everybody on a tape. But quite often, you would uh, just tape over the tape that you had from the week before. A bit like Joy Division did when I interviewed Pete Hook. He said they they finally got a cassette recorder and they're recording new songs over last week's tape. So they lost loads of songs. It's like loads of classic... Well, not classic, but loads of like half-written Joy Division songs have disappeared forever, which is quite frustrating in the terms of what that ended up like. And the same these interviews, but then I thought one day, I thought about three years ago, I thought I'm going to start looking through all these old cassettes because I never threw any of them away, never marked them up. And the first one I pulled out of the pile that I thought, uh, wouldn't it be amazing if I found that Nirvana interview, put it on. I thought, oh my God, it is a Nirvana interview. And it was really weird. It was like getting transported back 30 years into this really hot flat with no ventilation in, um, in Avenue B in Alphabet City when it was a pretty rough area. And... And, I, and they put the tape on. You can remember the whole thing. You know, you remember what. who's going to say what next. And you can remember sat in the room everyone was wearing. And the way it's was all like It was about 15 of us slept in that room. It was Tad, Nirvana, mm. me, mm. and the photographer, Ian Tilton. And Ian Tilton got run over by a bus. So he ended up um, having to go to hospital, having his leg uh, put into like plaster because it was broken, and sent back to the flat because he had no insurance because that's about, <laughs> you know, the land of the free for you. And uh, Nirvana were running out getting cheese butties for the last day and a half. Before we had to sort of virtually carry him onto the plane and fly him back home again. So it's quite a, it's quite an eventful trip that one. And I saw them play as well. I saw them playing in um, Maxwell's and Hoboken. It's about forty people there, and that gig's actually on YouTube, mm, and it looks really mm. busy, but I think in no way is that gig busy because I, can, I can, I've got a really good memory. And now it stood at the back of the room. And there's a quite a big gap to, to the little bunch of people at the front. But the gig was amazing. they trashed all the again and shoved it all through the roof of the venue. And there were four pieces at the time. So they had Chad Channing on drums. This is before uh, Dave joined. And they had Jason Everman on guitar. He was like a very gentle guy, like long curly hair, uh, just a bit of a, sort of a hippie grunger type. And um hung out with him a bit. We went, we walked around Manhattan, up and down the streets. Because I love walking up down Manhattan. You know, it's it's theatre in NLC. Mm,
2: mm. And
1: the rest of the band were tired. They just slept on the floor most of the time. And Kurt, I remember Kurt just curled up on a ball. He didn't even have a sleeping bag, and he never changed <laughs> his clothes or anything. But I reckon he was—he was probably strung out. But at the time, he didn't realise that because there was no idea there was a drug thing going on. This is such an early part of this story. So, so um, yeah. Then Jason ended up—he he, got—he left Nevada. Then he—he he, he joined after he joined one of the other bands in the that scene. And mm-hmm. then he ended up being in the American Marines for ten years and doing mm-hmm. do action in Afghanistan, which I cannot tally in my head at all. He seemed like the last person in the world you can imagine going in against the Taliban. He just seems such a gentle soul, but he's back out of that now. I've seen a picture of the other day somewhere. Yeah.
0: So we'll play a clip from that uh, a little bit later in the show and you can give us a little bit more kind of background uh, on that. And um, I think one other thing that I was going to bring up before we went into all that was uh, you mentioned there about recording on tapes. That's exactly what I did at the start of my career. And I've done just the same as you. I've got a pile of the tapes and I've definitely taped over some gold. So, like, I was going through the other day going, <laughs> yeah. I had an early Arcade Fire interview. I can't find it for love and the money. I mean, lucky I've still got the Artsy Monkeys one, right, that we put out on our first episode of uh, of this podcast. But, yeah, I am I only got a digital dictaphone probably five, six years after I started. So a lot of my, uh, my stuff is kind of lost in the ether.
1: Here's the real irony, because a lot of the stuff I recorded digitally is the stuff I can't find, because <laughs> I put it on my laptops, and I've gone through so many laptops over the years. I don't quite know where it all is, and and that wasn't marked either. So you can't just do a quick search. You old hard drives, and then there was there was other ones that recorded loads of different technologies, like mini discs. Recorded loads of stuff mini disks we I've got three Afex Twin interviews on mini disks but I haven't got a mini disc player, so I can't check the mini disks to find out if they're on there. You know, and these it, this is a super early Afex Twin interview, just when he started, just when he did Didgeridoo, and it's and it's a really great interview. and I've died to find that interview because it it, it will would, would be. It'd be the gold of the gold that one because 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 he he just talk about who he is and without without any of the mystique and stuff like that which came later on you know cause, because he he is like just a like a like a yob from Cornwall and makes magical music.
0: <laughs> so I'm yeah. pretty sure I've got I've got a mini disc player somewhere in my uh, my little pot of gold in my room that has all my tapes. in, so uh, happy to send that over to you if that helps with you digging. Well, it out would be amazing? Yeah, that
1: that that would that would be really good. Yeah, yeah. Don't. The, In return, you can have one of the interviews to play on the show if it's one that you want.
0: (laughs) I mean, absolutely. We'll definitely take you up on that. And I think if listeners haven't heard you before, I think they're probably already getting a sense of uh, kind of the breadth of your career and uh, some of the interviews you've done and some of the bands that you you saw coming up. So I think before we go into talking about Nirvana and celebrating that kind of 30th anniversary of Nevermind. I kind of want to talk a little bit more about, about yourself. You know, you came on the show a couple of years ago to talk about one of your other specialist subjects of the the Stone Roses, but we never really got into your background, you know, and you wanted, for me, one of the true survivors of the music press. You were definitely an influence on my career, kind of early on for me when I was starting out in Manchester, and I can't quite remember how I got to, to sort of know you, but I think it was through a friend of a friend of a friend sort of thing. And, you know, you go to enough gigs in Manchester, you're going to see you somewhere, usually somewhere near the back, somewhere near the bar, not drinking alcohol because you're teetotal. Yeah, 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 ironically, near the bar for no reason. (laughs) (laughs) For no reason, for for, for your water and your lemon and lime, right? But um, I guess I I wanted to kind of, you know, understand a little bit more about how you got started out in in the music press, you know, and I know that you're known as kind of Manx, the Manchester's music man about town, but you're actually from Blackpool, right?
1: Yeah, I always tell people from Blackpool, but people always uh, obviously because i lived in manchester for such a long time but there's this kind of a really weird dual thing that goes on people go you're from manchester why are you claiming you're from manchester i go no i don't claim from manchester i've always said i'm from blackpool you know people so so people have this kind of little argument themselves about it you know like like i'm I'm trying to kidnap manchester's musical legacy i mean Hmm. i just happen to live here i can live anywhere i mean I, i write about music from all over the world i just you have to live somewhere and Blackpool had no gigs, so you go to the, the nearest city, that has got stuff going on in it, which is Manchester, which even that point in time, which is 1984 and moved here, had an amazing music scene, you know, that the history of it up to that point, which we'd already been part of, because Blackpool and Manchester had so many tie-ins, you know, there was yeah, Section 25, who, who were, to me, almost as good as Joy Division, and they came from Blackpool, Ian Curtis's favourite band, he was always around their house. So a lot of those factory people were in Blackpool quite a lot. Manchester's always had that eternal love affair with Blackpool, you know. Uh, people from Manchester always got rose-tinted Specs version of Blackpool because that's where they all go with their kids and that for the holidays. And and, and the culture wasn't too different, you know. Was was I mean? Liverpool's an amazing city, you've got an amazing music scene, but it always felt slightly different. And so we always felt probably closer culturally to Manchester than to Liverpool. So it was easy to come and live in. Um, and, and and i suppose in the end i was part you're part of it aren't you we're in the rehearsal rooms you know the roses would be rehearsing next door the mondays the next rehearsal will be down the corridor we knew these people when they were when they were just starting out and stuff you know we, we were actually the bigger we were the bigger band. we were one of the bigger bands in town because we've uh we had a number two in the indie charts album you know so we had our little moment in the sun and these are like kind of local bands on the way just starting, you know, so, mm-hmm. so after all that scene starting from almost his very, very beginning and, and and we already knew people like Peter Hook from before so yeah, so culturally even geographically felt close to Manchester but but Blackpool is where I'm from and that's what I'll eternally tell people because it, it is a slightly different slant on things and I know if you're from Manchester, people, you know, if you're from a city you always go to people, which school do you go to you have the whole life worked out for where they live in the school, and I can't have that conversation because the school I went to is in Blackpool. But if I meet people from Blackpool, then we have that conversation. So mm-hmm. we do have our own sort of slightly different culture in Blackpool. You know, our own musical history with people like Jethro Tull or uh, Lemmy live there, and the, Robert Smith from Blackpool originally when he's super young, and also quiet keyboard players from synth duos like Pet Shop Boys and Soft Cell both went to the same school in Blackpool. So mm-hmm. it's actually really it's quite an interesting musical history. And and because it was a big showbiz town in the 50s, there was still a little shadow of that left when I was there. It it got it kind of gone, but you knew that George Formby lived there when he was the biggest pop star in Britain. I mean, so it was was still, there was still something there, but it was just fading really quickly. And we we tried to uh, spark it off again by putting gigs on, having a fanzine. We used the energy of punk to try and resurrect a Blackpool kind of scene, but it was an uphill battle because it was always about the holidaymakers. So the club we put gigs on, as soon as you get to April, you don't get your Monday night anymore, you know, it becomes and it got rough in there as well, there's a gang in Blackpool, gangsters who came down one night and uh, attacked our club and, and they stamped on Ian Tilton's head and that's why Ian Tilton's uh, the photographer, Ian Tilton he did those amazing Nirvana and Star Rose pictures that's why he's deaf in one ear because they stamped on his head and I was right next to him he did that, the guy jumped off the stairs to about 10 foot and landed right on his head, mm.
2: There's was about
1: 15 of them It was it was a heavy thing, you know And I had all the takings of the club and they were trying to find it, but I managed to get it down my pants before they could find it and stuff. When that's Blackpool. Blackpool's run by gangsters in those days.
0: And I guess my impression of Blackpool being, you know, an outsider and being the classic man who would go there on holidays, you know, in in kind of the 90s, for me it would have been, was was a bit of an underground punk scene, definitely a a bit of a punk feel, but probably run out of one or two pubs. And then obviously you've got the Tower where some pretty famous gigs of, you know, kind of touring bands would come and play and play some of their kind of most famous shows. Is that, is that Was that your experience in the 80s?
1: And when I was there, there was a couple of big bands played. I think the Jam played. It was the Empress Ballroom, not the Tower. I mean, they're very similar venues, and people always mix them up. But the Empress Ballroom is the best venue in Britain. It's amazing. It's where they used to have the political party conferences. It's where the Roses did their gig in 89. And it's it's a beautiful room, three tiers, and chandeliers at the top, and you get three and a half thousand there. It's a fantastic venue. White Stripes, it's Jack, it's, it's, it's Jack Wise's favourite um, venue in the world, isn't it? That's why he, he went back there to film the DVD. I mm-hmm. went to that gig as well, yeah. actually, because my mate was going out with Meg at the time, and um, he was just going, oh, this is this venue. You know, it's this night out of Blackpool DVD. I've seen the Prodigy play there. It's, it's an incredible place. You know, it's, it's, it's you could tell what Blackpool used to be, you know, like in the old days, Frank Sinatra, we do Paris, London, Blackpool, and go back to America. You know, it was the showbiz capital of Britain outside of London. When the Beatles were coming up, the Beatles by Blackpool 14 times. You know, hmm. it's, it's for, some, for the Beatles to play shows in Blackpool for them growing up in their periods. That was like, we've made it now. We're selling out places in Blackpool. You know, they used to do the Mike and Bernie Winters show, didn't they? On the Saturday night, the Beatles mm. four or five mm. times. You know, the only ta- the first time they sang yesterday live in the whole world was in Blackpool. and I was watching the other day. Actually, it's a fantastic clip. It's such a, and also the the clip of Jimi Hendrix burning his guitar, is in Blackpool. It's not London. It's actually in Blackpool. Because he... at that tour, there was people make a documentary on it and they filmed it with two gigs. So that clip with the gold shirt on, you see all times, the Palace Theatre. That tour is amazing because it's Jimi Hendrix and Sid Barrett's uh, Pink Floyd playing with the same bill. Mm. And Jimi Hendrix's roadie is Lemmy, and I interviewed Lemmy and asked him about that gig. It's the first time he'd gone back to Blackpool since he moved to go down to london and i I played that theater and uh, i I was saying to somebody in the band going there but we were just about to walk on stage and say like 40 years ago sid barrett Jimi hendrix and lemmy were stood here (laughs) Mm.
0: you made reference there to being in bands and obviously you were known for being in the membranes uh and you know you've recently been been touring again but i guess i'm trying to understand with your timeline what came first the being a punk musician or being a music journalist, or did it kind of happen at the same time being part of that kind of fanzine scene?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I guess if we backtrack slightly before that, it was Glam Rock was the music that had the biggest impact. That's where my starting point was Glam Rock, and also I've seen Hard Day's Night on Christmas TV in 1972. And it was captivating. I was about 11 then, but I thought they were still going. I, I thought that film was then. <laughs> I had no idea that it was an old film with a group that didn't exist anymore. And then it got a little older, and then you start to write. And the 60s then felt like a century ago. The Beatles, the Stones seemed like something that's hundreds of years before, because we were so to glam rock then. You know, then uh, in the early days, glam rock. You know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to claim any coolness here, because to me, uh, mud and sweet was brilliant as David Bowie or Mark Boland. You know, I know everybody I've ever interviewed is my age or slightly older. Edits the history. They go Starman on top of Pops was a moment. And you have mm. to try not to laugh because you're thinking, yeah, yeah, but you also like mud and sweet. But you're just not going to say that, are you? Because they're not <laughs> cool bands. You, as the years are rolled by, the, the goalposts have shifted over a little bit. The, when, when you're 11 or 12 and watch some of the pops, David Bowie doesn't seem any cooler than Mud. Do they just seem the same thing? You know, it was just it was just amazing, stomping, quite, quite odd music. You know, and even though they, we dare not mention his name, Gary Glitter did make great records. You know, Rock and Roll Part One is an amazing record, and the get-out clause of that is that Gary Glitter didn't really make the record, he just got brought in to shout hey over the top of it, anybody can <laughs> yeah. shout hey on it, it's Mighty Leander who made the records, and it's and it's an amazing record, it's an amazing piece of music, you know, and it's uh the, the and, and I know that there's a whole backstory to that, how that record got made in, in the, the David Essex Rock On session, which what well, another day we'll go into that, because it is a really cool story Uh and, and Rock On by David Essex, that's an amazing record, what a weird record, it's like a dub it's like a a rock and roll dub record, you know, and David Essex wrote that, and Mm. plays most of the instruments on it. So there's always kind of really weird, odd records, but growing up in Blackpool, this music seemed so alien, it could be made in outer space or London. It's all the same to us. You know, London (laughs) was a place, we actually did go to London once on a school trip to the uh, (laughs) the Jimmy Savile show of all places to go to. to, to Good. I'm seeing a
0: theme emerging here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the theme's not hard to get away from in the 70s because it's all over the place, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of other people who've kind of got better lawyers who still remain respectable, but you mm. know they're not. But it was living Newton-John did the song for Europe. I don't know why we went to that. It's just a school trip. Maybe the teacher wanted to go. So Olivia Newton-John sang the six songs for Europe and people the public voted for which one they wanted to be the song. And we were sat there as the audience. It was our school party. And Savile was there. And there's no inkling that Jimmy Savile was, was this vile, psychotic you know, pervert at the time. He just seemed like this person. You, you can never understand why he, he presented all the Pops because he just seemed like this really weird old bloke that had nothing to do with music. He didn't seem connect to music at all and the whole thing. But, of course, now, years later, you realise he was because he came well, He came out of Manchester, didn't he? And He's from Leeds originally, but he's, he used to do all the gigs at the Ritz. But I knew the stories about him being a psychopath before the pervert because I know uh, when people got uh, caused trouble in the Ritz, they used to take him around the back by the canal the savile would get off the DJ booth and bring his baseball bat around and beat them up because he, he was into that. So I mean, he was, I knew he was horrible, but I didn't know the depths of depravity and how utterly horrible he was till it all came out afterwards and things. So 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 there's all that going on. Um, so it's glam rock, but you couldn't get involved in it. Then punk appeared, and the first time punk for me was I saw the photographs of the bands and the papers. So pre-internet, this is quite hard to explain. You couldn't hear it; you could just see it. But when mm. you saw the bands, you kind of knew what the line was. It was a bit of a lull after glam; nothing seemed to happen for a year. you start getting more into football, and so we used to go and watch Blackpool a lot. And then, um, and then, then, when I saw the punk bands, I knew it was good straight away. But I never heard it. And the first time I heard it, it was in a skating rink in Blackpool. You couldn't get any more Blackpool than that, could you?
0: That <laughs> wasn't
1: like it wasn't like the Roxy or a cool club in London. It was the only place you go to when you're 15 was a skating rink. I mean, how? Utterly tatty seaside town, as that? And there's a, there's always a loads of fighting there. People get kicked with skates and that. But then they, they had a little punk section. They played all the punk records got released to the whole world at that time. All three of them.
2: Mm. And this was
1: December '76, and we go, wow, wow, what is this? It was amazing. We still, could, I still couldn't work out who was who, and what was what, and what it was all about. And it was like a, it was a really it was a crash course for the ravers. It was like it took about a year to work out what it was. I mean, we were so naive. We had no idea. We just worked it all out back to front on our own. And I think, really, that's what post-punk was. All over the country, people like me and we're in sort of small towns that are off the beaten track a bit, didn't have the big city culture, uh, redefining punk in their own terms and getting it all wrong, but in a sense reinventing it as their own pop culture, which is what the membranes were. You know, somebody brought copies, Spiral Scratch at school, and thought, wow, that's homemade! You mean we can actually make our own records? Because that looks like they just made that themselves. It took ages to work out how to do it. And somebody brought a copy of Sniffing Glue to school as well, the Mark Perry's fantastic punk fanzine. And it and mm. it's only done it on a broken typewriter. All the headings are felt-tipped. And then you realise you, you could actually make this yourself as well. So so they're, they're the inspiration points where punk was empowering. And the idea of punk was you could create your own culture on your own terms, and you didn't really need to copy anybody else. I mean, we never, we never set out to make a punk band that sounded like a, a punk band. We... We just made music that sounded right to us, you know, and we never learned to play properly. We just, and we basically stayed in that tangent for about four decades.
0: <laughs> and, and what, you know, what, what what was that kind of blend of being a writer and, and a musician? You know, were, were you, did did both appeal at the same time or did one appeal first and then that helped you learn about the other? Like, how did that work?
1: They're pretty well on tangent, really. I think, to me, I don't see a difference, really. I think if, if you're a musician, you're also a massive music fan. And you're always explaining to people why you like something, and then and then also why the context of the culture as well, which is always fascinating. You know, uh, and it's great we interview people who think in these terms, like Johnny Marr. You know, Johnny Marr will spend half an hour telling you about his quest to buy a jacket that matched his Johnny Thunder's records because he's one of his idols, and that. And they understand that a pair of socks can be as important as a B-side of a record. And it's all, especially in Britain, that's British pop culture, and it that, that it's the whole. 360 and it? it's the clothes the way you talk the, the sort of jokes you have the way you walk what you sound like that is british pop culture isn't it it's not mm. american pop culture difference it's more about the music isn't it i know every band that britain goes it's only about the music but the bands i mean i remember the first time i saw the Fall, and it also and it struck us straight away they took, probably took them more work to look like they had not they, they weren't part of anything you know that they were, they were dressed down it's probably mm. harder work to not look like you're part of something and it's all it's all it's all part of the whole shtick you know every, every group has worked it out you know it's people are like it's almost pretending that that you that you're not doing that you, you just oh you would just walk on the stage without even caring is another shtick so it's that's how british culture works it's all it's intense and that's what's great about it so that was the punk thing it's power. the message of punk was do it yourself you know you do it like don't don't just be a passive consumer get involved you know and that was and that was a red rag to a bull to people like me because I'd always wanted to make music. I wanted to make music when I was 12, but I didn't know anybody had a guitar. I mean, I do not know how you made music. I had no idea. I remember getting a cigar box and putting rubber bands over it and trying to make a guitar. That way, it just, it's, it's impossible to get musical instruments. The only musical instruments you saw at school in music lessons, but they were like things like triangles. I mean, mm. <laughs> they were playing music with a triangle. <laughs> they only they really do classical music because they thought pop music was rubbish
0: and it would die out a year. Isn't that yeah, what but, Noel Gallagher's band now play? Things like the triangle and scissors.
1: Yeah, but no, that's kind of <laughs> a joke, isn't it? But, but that's 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 Noel's attempt to be psychedelic, but not too psychedelic, isn't it?
0: <laughs> psychedelic <laughs> enough for the dads, yeah.
1: But but you know what? He could make a great weird psychedelic record. I know he doesn't have to, but but he's actually far more. Um, he's he's got he's got a far more experimental mind than he lets on with his music. I mean. He's great. He's, he's a great melody writer. He doesn't have to innovate, but I know I know, I know him from years ago. And I know what he's into. And he's, he's he could he could be a lot more experimental. But somebody like me, who's been involved in so-called experimental-ish music for years, I, I think he's probably better off where he is. <laughs>
0: mm. And I guess just, just to just to bring it back round. So you um, back round to you. I think away from Noel Gallagher is. Um, you know, you you started out kind of writing for fanzines, but eventually you made it to Sounds magazine. So, what was like your what was your break into the national press?
1: Well, it's it's kind of a weird route. So, I mean, the fanzine got quite big. It's a fanzine called Rocks, R O X, and it was selling about three thousand. And then there's people started hanging out with us because we, we we're touring quite a lot and then I meet people around the country. So, uh, one of our big fans in London was a legend who became Everett True, and he go he always had a plastic bag full of fanzines. And then, then I met this 14-year-old, 15-year-old kid in Leeds who was the cockiest kid that I ever met in my life, James Brown, uh, you know, eventually went on. You've probably known for it. Was he still at the me when you were there or he'd gone? Well, you know, no, was longer.
0: He, he was longer. He was probably, he'd probably gone on to Loaded by that point.
1: Yeah, yeah. So so he was turning up at gigs in Leeds. and Then he came to Manchester a couple of years later when he was about 17 because he was like starting to write. He was appearing on TV and he crashed out our house. In fact, the first time he was on telly, he had a mohawk, and I remember cutting his mohawk for him with these handheld little hair clippers that he used to have hmm. to cut my hair with, which pulled your hair out. So he had loads of little cuts on his, his head on the telly from it. And that was the first time he was on the telly. And he did this amazing fancy called Attack on the Zag, which was actually... Um, it was, it was, I, I don't want really, to... It sounds pompous. Well, I guess it, there was an influence of in my fancy, because the thing was, we, we used to draw cartoons all over it and really take the piss quite a lot. And... And it's so they look like works of art. I'm going to make them. Actually, I put it in the day is a picture of the, one of the covers. And loads of people said you've got to make that into a t-shirt. So we're going to make it into a t-shirt. And there's already a hundred orders for it because it actually became like an art form. You know, because mm. before that, fanzines were one star in our little area it was a bit different. It was more like a Spike Milligan book or something. It was like pictures cut out of a magazine with things scrubbing all over them. Which James actually took on into Loaded. You could see bits of Loaded like that. You know, like they'd have a. You know, an 18th century cartoon, the speech bubble saying something really stupid, which is so much our thing at the time, And that So, so from that, then I got into Zigzag, which was a, an underground magazine sold about ten thousand. It's nationally distributed. It was a great alternative post punk kind of golf magazine, whatever. Uh, there was I was doing bits and pieces for that, and then I remember uh, I hadn't seen James for ages, and he came down to a gig that we played in Manchester, and he he he, 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 he sort of bitched about the band. That's okay. So I wrote a letter to taking the piss. And then he rang up and he said, I'm, I'm, he's quite apologetic, actually, and he said, I'll get you on Sounds as, to make up. And that's how I ended up hmm. getting on Sounds. Completely ridiculous, true. And I became their, their Manchester writer. I had no intention of being doing it. for. I, mean, I was quite happy being in the fanzine world, because I, I remember saying to James and Legend, you know, we should stick it out in the fanzine world. You know, we, we could build it up and make an alternative press. But of course we couldn't, because our, our magazines were so mental. They were never going to sell. We sell about 3,000, which is quite a lot, actually, for what we're doing. But the music press, by getting into the music press, actually probably had more effect in the end because we could t- take they'll they big down the music papers, and you can actually make an impact writing about the bands that you're writing about. You know, and it did mm. it did make an impact.
0: And uh, you know, later in your career at Sounds, you know, you claim or you're one of the people who has claimed to have coined the word Britpop. I think a lot of people have laid claim to that uh, to that <laughs> term. So what what's your what's your pitch to say that it was you that coined the term Britpop? Well, yeah, it's
1: funny, isn't it? Because every time this argument comes up, and it's usually between me and Stuart McConey, um, the, the way the way I have say, okay, I used it in 1987 to review a gig by the Lars and Stone Roses in Liverpool. Lars are headlining, and I remember thinking, Lars are going to be massive. You know, they're just going to they're just going to go through. And there's quite a few of these very melodic, kind of edgy, 60s psychedelic ish. Bands around, so I thought the way Stone Rose can make it is when Lars make it, they can come through that slipstream. See, I'm like because I remember that gig. Uh, Lars had the Lars had a good reaction. Stone Roses is about three of us clapping. You know, nobody liked it. And um, mm. this is the five-piece Roses, and I remember Ian Brown jumping in the water. There's like a lake in front of the stage because it's in the um, in the park, Liverpool, it's Princess Park. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a great gig. I mean. But it was like a local band's gig. I mean, now that build just seems like utterly legendary, but it's just two local bands. The Roses were Leather Trousers, paisley Shirts at the time, not the goth look. That was mm. a creation records, uh, Mary Chain, uh, Primal Scream look that, that they're having. And they were good. I, I like the early Roses. I think, like, Tell Me and all those are really good songs. But there just wasn't an audience, that kind of music at the time. And I used it there because Sounds had done this cover a few weeks before called Brickcore, where they wrote about this new... Sort of punk scene coming out, of cities like Nottingham, mm. and it was, it was basically just a joke on that. Turning to Britpop, and then then I just sort of knocked the term around like you do when you're a writer. So other reviews and interviews that just drop it in here, drop it in there, and then eight years later, Stuart McConey came up with it. Probably, probably genuinely th- thought he came up with it, you know. And I, I have no problem with that at all, you know. It's it's, it's only because um, because he's in the enemy world, and enemy always seems to get. Uh, it its version of history always seems to become the, the reality for some reason. Hmm. <laughs> so, so that became the more accepted version. So sometimes i to say, oh, hang on. It was actually a bit different. And I don't know. A couple of people have found it. Somebody found it in a review of the Sex Pistols in 1977 playing in Sweden or something. But it's says two separate words. It said hmm. there was a Brit pop scene, whereas it wasn't <laughs> one word. So it's in a different context. And the context I was using it in, was bands sort of harking back to, to the, the classic periods of British pop music, uh, you know, the Beatles, Stones, Pistols, da, 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 all that, and make it in, in, into a new generation. So I was kind of using the concept of what eventually became. And you can follow that line all the way through, really, because I think when you're watching, watching Lars and Stone Rose in 1987, you are watching what eventually became Britpop in 94, because Britpop in 94 wasn't a completely different scene that appeared out of a vacuum. It was basically London finally managed to catch up with Manchester, I mean, all those bands that were involved in Britpop, some of them were actually around in the Manchester period, struggling away, like Pulp, you know. I mean, mm. Pulp, used to, Pulp supported mm. the Membranes a couple of times. You know, they they no, when they played you in Sheffield, they go, oh, God, not that band. No one goes to see them. They haven't even got any friends. Because <laughs> <laughs> when, you're, when you're a circuit band, you always need a support band to bring 30 to 50 people into the gig on, on top of your 80 to 100 to make it into a gig. So if you got a support band that nobody goes to see, it's always a bit of pain, really. <laughs> I mean, I, they were good, and I've got a lot of their early demos. And I was friends with Russell. I mean, he's and, and Jarvis as well. I knew Jarvis, but Russell better because and he's come down and he Russell used to come and see us play. I remember he came to Chesterfield to see us play years, years ago, years and years, and gave me a demo tape which I still got actually of the pub stuff. So yeah, so so and, you know, an and Oasis. I been mean, really, Noel. As part of the Manchester scene. You know, we know he was in Spiral Carpets, you know, he tried to join the Spiral Carpets as a singer. So really he's Manchester. You know, and, and uh, Blur, his first single was a Stone Roses knockoff, you know, it's they're very, very much part of them of bands trying to make Manchester music. And it became the music press sort of sort of separated it, made it into a different thing. So when you're listening to it knowing the lineage, you think this is actually much that much difference, you know, I mean the spiral carpets were still having hits. They had hits in
0: both scenes, didn't they? Mm, mm. no you're right they kind of straddled both both eras didn't they yeah. there's a lot of bands yeah. that sort of did but it didn't necessarily fit into that sort of uh, sort of neat package i guess something else i wanted to talk to you about is you know we've given a nod before that you are t total and you know you're you're a pretty clean living fella you know you're a vegan um i like would say teetotal. total and i mean do you think this has helped you to kind of forge ahead with a career in the music industry and and in within music journalism simply because Many others have fallen by the wayside because they can't hack it for, for many more than kind of 10, 15 years. I mean, do you think that? And it's you know it's it's in kind of opposition to a lot of what you see in the music industry and music journalism. I can say that with experience, you know, that that clean living lifestyle. So, you know, do you think that's helped with ultimately keeping you kind of in the game?
1: Probably ultimately. I mean, yeah, there was definitely time in the, you know, quite a long time in, in the early days of writing, probably like everybody else and things, I mean, in the e period, just right in the middle of all that. I mean, that was a great time, but you get bored of it all, don't you? And, and then I like the clarity. I like to get, I like to stay up late and get up early, and I like to be as high energy as I possibly can and get more, get more done. Because I think you find, um, if if you're a lot of people on the burnout, that eventually catches up and you, and you, and you lose your focus as well. You have to be quite focused with music. And and like you say, I've seen the casualties. I mean it's quite sad really. I mean when I started doing the website about about twelve, eleven years ago, uh, I knew a few people had died, but and and every now and then somebody die, you do a little write-up about them. I can't keep up with it now. People just die all the time, you know. It's mm-hmm. I know it's because I'm getting older and that's inevitable, but because I'm involved in music and some people couldn't let go of those lifestyles, it's just it's just like loads of people have died, you know. And, when I find old clips, good things, or read old things, or look at old vid- videos and like that, I think, oh, God, there's about five people in there that aren't with us anymore, and it's it's quite tragic. I mean, so, inevitably, of course, some people are going to die anyway, but someone died because of rock and roll, completely burned them out. And Then you get complete anomalies. He, he, like Pete Doherty, who lived the most insane lifestyle and just seemed utterly indestructible, don't they? You know, mm. you know when mm. he's 80, he's probably still going to be living that lifestyle. You know, and I'm good luck to him as well because that's that's his thing. It's just the tragedy is if it makes anybody else think they can maintain that lifestyle. You you only have to read about the Rolling Stones to see all the casualties who couldn't keep up Keith Richards. You know, it's, some people have the constitution, but also those people are getting better drugs. You know, that, that aren't cut with like loads and loads of crap, and they kind of know what mm. they're doing as well. You know, they they worked out the right amount of tape to get to the right place. They have become doctors of drugs, don't they? With some hmm. people, just you know, you get those people just injecting out of toilets and using the water out of a toilet and Sid vicious thing. And I knew people did all that kind of murky, dark lifestyle, you know. And God, it, it's really sad, you know. And, and you know, and you, and, you and, and for some reason, a lot of these people if I'm out and about. This they tend to gravitate towards me, you know, hmm. <laughs> the, the mumbling uh, heroin addict or something. I guess they just look for the most solid-looking person in the room.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you are a pretty, you are a pretty thick-set guy, right? I mean, you know, you you clearly work out.
1: I am. I'm after. this you, I will be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And uh, I yeah. I, guess, I guess, just another thing I wanted to talk to you about, you know, is obviously you, you're one of the survivors of the music press, but the music press has kind of been collapsing on itself in recent years and we could do a whole show on that you know and uh, probably we're not going to go into loads of depth tonight but i guess i'm interested to know you know you're already very act- still very active with you know you've got your own website you said louder than war podcasts media spots you're always popping up on kind of bbc breakfast and and things like that whenever they need kind of a cultural commentator so like how how long do you think you'll carry on in, in music journalism do you have do you have a retirement date in mind or is it is it until is it until you know you breathe your final you know your last breath you know
1: well, you could say, yeah, maybe, yeah. Well, when I get to a time age like sixty, sixty-two, whatever, but that—that's my age now, isn't it? So <laughs> <laughs> it looks like this is going to keep going, doesn't it? I guess, I guess, to the point we run out of things to write about would always be, you know, if you, if you, if you write about things you have no interest in, just to make a living, that's when it's not right. Not right, is it? Because there is there is no payoff. You don't get paid to write for your own website. There's no money in it. It is a labour of love, and the other stuff you do makes some money, doesn't it? But there's still that buzz it, of hearing something new or something old, and finding new context to it, a new twist to it. Um, the, the 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 magic of music it's to this day it's it's magical, isn't it? You you put it on the headphones and, and you listen to it, and you go, oh god, that it transports you, doesn't it? And it's and mm. it, it, it never goes away. That does it? It's, to me, it's still the highest art form, you know. I love playing guitars, I love play, I love listening to music, I love creating music, writing about it. And it's, you know, whether I'm actually musical or not is another question, but it completely captivates me. I think it's it's amazing. I mean, some people are into, you know, in, into, um, you know, they're, they're into painting, some people are into TV, some people are into film. I like all those different medias, but to me, the highest pleasure will be uh, music. And, and it can be such a diverse, ridiculous cross-section of music. Maybe to this day, I always think I write about music to try and explain to myself why why the hell I like some of this stuff because it it doesn't Mm. actually make any sense.
0: I think you're right. And I think that's probably why even I started the show again because I found, you know, I'd left music writing for a few years and I missed having that outlet to talk about it. I'm one of those people that the first thing I want to do when I hear something great is tell a load of other people about it. Almost. To validate, of look, look, look at this thing I found. You have yeah. to listen to this, you know. And I think I see that in you as well. It's like a passion that you can't fake.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the preacher thing, isn't it? It's in a sense, it's and it, it can be, it, it could be like a new band or it could be an old band that people just don't don't seem to understand. You know, you go. I still don't understand why nobody ever got this band. See, every every year you you sort of get it back out again. Please listen to this; you will like it. And it's quite weird as the years gone by because a lot of the music that we were involved in making or the scenes we're in in the 80s where people just thought we'd been difficult and hard to listen to has now become mainstream. I, I look at a band like Idols, who are, I think are fantastic. But, you know, if, if they come out in the 80s, there'll be a band that would be stuck supporting us in some back room of a pub somewhere in Chesterfield mm. or somewhere. <laughs> you know, because, because bands, I mean, yes, they do sound like a t- 21st century. Yes, they have moved it on. And, they, and they, they they do have the nouns to make it into, into pop songs, but ostensibly isn't that much different from the music that we were all making thirty thirty odd years ago. You know, of Mods is mm. another one. You know, mm. it's, you know that it's it's kind of willfully awkward music that gets in the top five, and it's it's mm. great. It's a victory. You know, and some people resent it. And I, I I'm cheering these people on. I think it's great. That, because I, I, we didn't deliberately set out to be an underground band and none of the bands I knew did nobody ever formed a band to go and play to five people in hall that's you know that, that's a lot that's a, that's 24 hours of your life you know and it's great those five people turn up but mm. it's tough it's, it's a tough gig to do you know and but it's, it's just because we were so insane that we actually thought the music we we're making why, why is this not the you know number one chance you know it, it wasn't for the money or the fame it was just to survive. You know, if you could get paid X amount of money a year, you knew you could just keep doing it, and that's all everybody ever thought about. Uh, but now the victory is that the next generation have actually got bands who, who took that message, the musical and and actually quite a lot of the lyrical message, right smack bang into the mainstream. And I've never been a person who who thought only the cool people should get the cool music. I think it's there for everybody. You know, it's mm. it's, it's your and, and 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 I don't like snobbly music where people. And that idea of guilty pleasures, oh, suck that. You know, it's, it mm. doesn't matter what you like. You don't have to feel bad about it. You don't have to, like, you don't have to judge yourself or other people by their records. You know, when you go to somebody's house and they've only got their cool records wrapped up. You just think, hmm. yeah, yeah, but just behind that, Slade's Greatest Hits, which as soon as I leave, you'll put that on because it's hmm. the best record you've got. And actually, if you, look at, if you listen to Slade, they're just one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time because Noddy Holder's voice is phenomenal. He's an amazing singer. But because mm-hmm. they 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 did that downbeat brummy thing, of um, saying well, we're not that great really, and and they dressed up a bit and clowned around. No one takes them seriously. But take one step back, listen to that run of singles in his voice. It's, it's it's amazing, isn't it? It's just amazing. I mean, you know you know where Led Zeppelin were actually he was actually in the shortlist and they got Robert Plant instead. I mean, they'd heard about this really amazing singer in, in the Midlands and they went to, went to find him and got Robert Plant. And they they got very similar voices, haven't they? So it's you couldn't you mm. could have actually swapped mm. them over. <laughs>
0: I'm trying to think of a segue now from uh, Slade and Led Zeppelin into Nirvana, and there probably is one. Yes, but, um... yes. Well, well,
1: this this is curious thing because the first time I heard Nirvana, I thought Kurt Cobain sounded like John Lennon, obviously, but also a bit like Noddy Holder. But that's <laughs> of course, because Noddy Holder um, sang like John Lennon, you know, and, and Slade, in a way, this this is this is kind of your segue, but Slade in the early 70s is what people wanted the Beatles to sound like, you know, the people our age who grew up after us. And he thought John Lennon was going to come back with this really raucous, tough little rock and roll band. And and the first album is a great record, the second one's okay, but then, then, it, then it didn't really happen, did it? it got a bit. So it, Slade was, was our version of the Beatles and maybe Nirvana is in, that, is in that line into just great, raucous, powerful, you know, you can hear the flesh ripping on their throats. So there's your segue.
0: <laughs> mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll take it. So yeah, that, that does kind of take us into chatting about Nirvana, which was like the main thing we wanted yeah. to do on this uh, on this show. And yeah, uh, we're going to play the clip of your uh, interview, the first interview they, they did with the press in, in a little minute. But just set the scene for us again. So, you know, this was the second time that you'd interviewed the band. Um, you know, how did you get the commission with sounds is probably the bigger thing I want to know. How did you convince them to cover this band that at the time uh, weren't known, you know, outside of the 40 people who were catching them in bars in the US?
1: Because Sounds was a completely brilliant paper. It wasn't like the NME; it was freelance power. They let the freelancers uh, dictate what was in the paper because we went out all the time. The people, the, the staff at Sounds, who's friends to this day, we used to go to lots of gigs as well. So they, they'd always say to me, "We don't always like what the music you like, but we know we should put it in because we totally trust you." And over the years, that changed, didn't you know? it? It became more. The, the freelancers have to justify, about will that be in the, in the midweek charts and all that. And that didn't matter what it sounds. You know, you sounds to put things on the front cover and the circulation would tank because it was just such a mad thing to put on the cover, but they didn't care. They just put something else on that was completely mad to put on the cover the week after. And it was, it was, it was a very music fan orientated paper. So, so I was free to write about what I wanted. But I Wasn't greedy, I wouldn't go in there and say I want two pages on the partner. I just said there's something about this, it's really amazing. Just give us a quarter of a page, and I'll just tee it up and we'll put it out there and see what happens, you know. So I was in a way I was self editing, you know, it wasn't like because obviously, you can, if you really thought your corner, you can get more work and get paid more because you get paid by the word. But I thought it was important. That, it's, that it makes sense. It starts off a quarter page and becomes a page and blah, blah, blah. so so the same with the roses. That's why we, we got the roses early because they just let you write about things that, that weren't known in London. You know, mm. I mean they wrote, the roses are in sounds before I'd written about them. They, were in, they played one gig of them and they had a little cutaway in the cover of sounds. I mean that's what sounds is like. It, if a freelancer that was Gary Johnson wrote about first, he just went in the next day and said this band's amazing. Put a little picture of them on the cover. It wasn't a whole front cover, it's just like a little cutaway. And they had a full page interview after one gig i mean that's that's how mad that paper was <laughs> so that's 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 how it worked with nirvana they just they
0: just let us do it you know and I, you know with, with that i bet they didn't have a budget for flying you over so did sounds cover cover the, the expenses or were you overdoing something else but how did all that work out
1: well the first one was a phoner because the phone his mum's house when he's he's still living in Washington then you know and uh, sorry in Aberdeen you know the logging town in Washington state he still lived there so that mm. was a phone call and then the, the next one was a few months later uh, in the summer. So what they did was because I, I covered about six or seven bands and he's brokering a deal. So each label would pay a hundred quid each or 200 quid each towards your airfare, whatever it was. But there's no hotel because the, the budget ran out then. And that's hmm. why we ended up sleeping on the floor of Janet Billig who ended up, um, she, she actually looked after Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love's daughter she was like the godmother, but really looking after because her parents, they're not parent material, are they really? And then then she, then she, for years, she was like running, virtually running Universal Records, you know, really high up in the music business. But she had this flat in um, New York where bands were staying. And like I say, it was Avenue B in Alphabet City, which is nothing like it. I mean, it's all, that's all, um, you know, nice little Japanese noodle bars now. But then it it was like, it was mad. It was just right next to Avenue C, which is the Puerto Rican area. It was like the junkie street. So I remember Mm. sitting on on the stairs outside the flats and got to know the local crack dealer because he was always hanging around on the stairs. And he he said, hey, man, do you want to see my gun? And he had a little gun down his sock, which he (laughs) got out and stuff like that. And about every half an hour, a massive limo would pull up and then the window would wind down, a bag of drugs go in, the cash come out. The money go down. He put put his money belt and stuff, and he. I mean, he's just an American kid. He's about eighteen with a gun and that. But he say, he say, hey. and mean, this is what Americans are liking it, Do you know the Queen?
0: Hmm. <laughs> <I don't> no. <know. laughs> <laughs> I know Queen,
1: <laughs> not the Queen. <laughs> and so we stayed in that flat, and that's that was our t- tour base. So all on one floor, you know. And Tad, who the who the headline band, four piece band, who were about. Big American guys, twenty-five stone, big fat guys, you know, huge hugely were, and and they snored like crazy. I, I'm a light sleep. I just slept on the kitchen floor. And it's an open plan flat, flat, and I slept underneath my coat. And I still remember all the snoring now. And and, and also, that she didn't have any ventilation, and it was the middle of summer. It was like a greenhouse in there. Mm, <laughs> it just mm. really is, It was hot. It was hard work, but it's somewhere to stay because otherwise, there was nowhere to stay. We didn't get hotels like that. I mean, we never. We've done that all over the world. I mean, when I did for Gazi. In Italy we didn't have hotels there in fact no one told them that I was coming to interview them because they didn't do interviews with music press so when I turned up they're going well we, we don't do interviews with music press but they knew who I was luckily because I think a lot of bands trust you when you're in a band they know the, they know that you know what it's like they know that, that you know it's all about being in a van going to the gigs setting up and also I, I when they broke strings at the gig that night they played in this squat gig to about a thousand people I, I, I just did their strings for them and, Tuned the guitars and gave them, them back and sitting on the amp and things. So mm. Mm. so I could I could do all those other things. I wasn't I wasn't in there for you know the luxury ride. I didn't mind mind getting my hands dirty and helping the bands out with the gear and stuff. It was a bit but it sounds like that, it's more hands-on and and it never got I mean, there was certain of the writers and certain of the papers. You start to think they're bigger than the bands and they're like rock stars you oh, go, you're you're in from Mighty Fall because most people don't really care about you that much. You know, the music is everything. The musician is everything. I mean, if you do an event, no matter how well you known you are as a journalist, you'll get a finite sort of crowd. But if, mm. if a musician turns up, it'll be 10 times. And that's how it should be, in a sense. I mean, there is an art. It's a great writing. Of course there is. But the real art and the reason why we're all here, and why we're all doing it, is because somebody made an amazing piece of music it touched a generation, in not it? I mean,
2: mm, you wouldn't mm. you
1: wouldn't be asking me about Nirvana now if they, if Kurt Cobain hadn't come up with Teen Spirits. You know, if they'd just been like a small underground band and stayed in a small underground band, it'd be a sort of band that me and six of the friends talk about once a year. Go, oh, remember that band? How come they never made it? You know, mm, but because mm. because uh, he, he came up with Teen Spirit, they ended up being a generation defining band, didn't they?
0: so this is probably a good place to, to play in a clip of the interview then now what were they what were they like were they different when you hit record i used to find this with band interviews that they'd be a very different beast when you hit record so what what was it like before the interview started
1: uh well before the interview started kirk was very quiet hardly said words he was just curled up in a ball in the corner of the flat never changed his clothes uh talked a little bit but the the one who talked the most is that jason the, the other guitar player but chris nosavolich was very able, he was obviously, he's, Christos Savalic seems to be the boss of the band, not not the creative boss, but the one mm. who's,
0: a bit in, more in business a way, minded.
1: Well, in the kind of way, he's like, hey guys, I think we better get off to the gig now. He's like, he wasn't really that organised, you know. It wasn't mm. like, hey, get in the band, five minutes. Like most American bands are like the Marines, aren't they? You know, it's, mm. if, you don't get, if you don't get in the tour bus, you have to pay your own way to get to the next gig. So, that's how You know, when you tour the American bands, it's quite weird. You know, it's at five o'clock, they all troop in the venue exactly on the dot of time they're meant to be there, set up. You know, British bands are sort of messing about for about an hour. The American bands, you know, it, it is like the Marines. You know, they go in and build a bridgehead or something on the stage.
2: Mm. So you
1: learn you learn off American bands that they're road animals because basically it's such a... They, they tour continents in America. That's how they learn to be in the bands. And you do 15-hour drives. You've got to have your shit together. Was a Britain? You just go forty miles. You can make them. You can you can cock that up and still get away with it. Mm. So, so in America, there has to be a level of organisation. But Navarro a bit more um, laid back than that, I think. So yes, and he but he was the one who was a bit more. He would make sure Kurt got on the van, sort of thing. I mean, it wasn't like Kurt was completely dissolute. He was just a bit uh, away with the fairies slightly. And mm. as the years gone by, now I know why. Now I've got to know Mark Lanigan really well because we toured with Mark last year. And uh, Mark and Kurt. Shared a flat at that time, actually, and, and and a little bit later, and it was a bit of a mad flat. And 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 you've probably read mark Aligun's book, or but it's God, it's a brutal book. You know, it's just mm. I can't mm. I can't believe he got he got out of the other side of that. You know? Not not
0: so, not many people come out of it looking great, do they?
1: No, no. Yeah, he, he has a, a very different pallor, but he's but he's in he's in fairly good shape for somebody who. who I mean, obviously, we'll talk about how people took drugs and cranking out toilet bowls. He, it's in his book He's has on about doing that, you know, the filthiest, dirtiest drugs injecting them without caring and stuff like that. Mm. But what makes – I mean, normally a book like that, about five pages, I'd be going, oh, God, I'm so bored of this. But he's a really beautiful writer and he writes it really well. So he, he tells, you know, the, the classic <laughs> rancid rock and roll story in really eloquent prose. And
2: mm, and it's a story mm. of
1: redemption because he gets out the other side and he cleans up and he sorts himself out. And there are reasons that he gets into that in the first place. And when, when you know him and you've been on tour with him, you can see that he's an extraordinarily sensitive person as well, you know, and he's tough, but he's also, um, in, in that way, you know, that in America, it's even worse in this country where blokes have to be blokes from America. I mean, a bloke has to be a cowboy, don't they?
0: Mm. <laughs> so you live with Kurt, and the, and you, I guess, yeah. you found out a bit more about Kurt through him.
1: Yeah, well, I just you didn't go into a lot of detail, but you kind of know there was it was it was a dark scene in that house. I mean, just just drugs. They just they just took it to the extreme, and also that guy out of Earth. He, he shared the house as well. So one's dead now, and the other two have have like really really lived in looking skin. I mean. There's one night we I on that tour in Europe and the guy from Earth actually turned up to see Mark on his birthday and they were both stood together. I said, Jesus, these guys are 10 years younger than me. Mm. It's like it's like, it's like like Keith Richards squared or something. <laughs> <laughs> but they got out to the side, both of them. So it's, it was a victory and, and a redemption. The guy of Earth is fantastic. I mean, they're an amazing band. You should miss them, actually. They, they, they did the earliest kind of modern drone rock stuff, which is good. But the stuff they do now is really slow blues. It's, mm. it's so slow. It's hypnotic. That when they shoot the girl on the drums, she kind of goes dum, dum. but slower than that. You think, God, it's so slow, but it kind of draws you in, and it's really atmospheric. The stunning bands, and um, but he, he's also what he's really into fairies, and he believes that fairies exist, and he's gone out with this woman in England now who's a, a leading fairy expert. So, <laughs> so, so when he turned up in this gig, had a long talk about underground British punk and post-punk. And uh, fairy folklore. Hmm. So, but which I thought was quite amazing, isn't it? You could go through that most dark rock and roll life and end up believing in fairies. Which is, hmm. in a sense, it's what you want from people like that. And I don't, I don't want him turning with an attache case and doing the accounts on the table. Hmm. You know, you, you, you'd want, you want the guy of Earth to actually be somebody who's. For want of better was slightly eccentric.
0: <laughs> mm. So, Kurt was more reserved during the interview when you for this interview we're about to play. Kurt was a bit more reserved than the members of the band, you found?
1: Yeah, he was. Yeah, but what we actually actually when, we, when you listen to the interview, it's Chris Nossovelich does the not all of it, but um, he does most of the leading explanations and Kurt kind of chips in. And then now again, Kurt will do an explanation and Chris will back him up. So, he was very much looking after him, which was their relationship, wasn't it? Because he's about nine foot six and Kurt's about five foot six, and he so mm. he so when they were the two freaks in Aberdeen, Chris was the big guy who looked after these little mates, you know, and so so there was there was definitely they were obviously they were the core, of the band, you know, and that and and that relationship was definitely it was like Kurt was the sensitive artistic type, uh, who probably got beaten up a lot at school. And Chris was a guy who could look after him in, in a way. So, um, but also a, a great bass player, key part of the band. I mean, I know Kurt was was a songwriting genius, but I think without Chris, I don't think that band would have his, would have ever have existed. I think he gave him the confidence to to actually go on stage. I think you know, mm. and it's, it's funny when you see Kurt on stage because 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 he his guts out. And maybe that's why he didn't speak at Northwell afterwards, because he could probably shot his voice to pieces. Mm. And there wasn't mm. much left to give, because it's like that on tour. If you're a pretty intense performer and a singer, after about two weeks, you just beat. You can only you talk. You, I get mm. that on tour. I'm, cro- I'm croaky now from the Mark Lannigan tour, which was December <laughs> 2019. There's a whole chunk of your voice about here has never come back again. You know, Because <laughs> it's, it's loud on a stage. You're giving it everything. And mm. then you talk people all night and then you get back You get back to England and your voice has gone down to about that much <laughs> and, and, and little bits of it come back but Kurt was even more because he was screaming mm. through all mm. them songs as well, I don't, I think if they carried on if they carried like that level of intensity and volume, he wouldn't even be able to do it now, you know, he just wouldn't be able to sing, you know when people talk about old singers, voices going, people always say that about Paul McCartney but I must say, for somebody who's 70, whatever, 77, 78 last time I heard him sing the last record his voice is still pretty pretty damn good really considering isn't it
0: mm, mm. well you're talking there about giving your voice a break let's give you a break now while we play out this uh, clip of your uh, your interview and uh, yeah we'll see you on the other side listeners so yeah this is uh, John Robb interviewing uh, Nirvana way back in what was it 1989
1: this, this one want to be yes 89 New York City that, yeah. 1989
0: so yeah we'll we'll see you on the other side listeners
3: You've been writing songs for years. Well, we were. well I've been writing songs for these six years in this genre of style of music. Um, I don't know, how long have we been at it, Chris? Like, no. we've been revolving in and out of bands that never really did anything or even kept a name for more than a month. Yeah. I mean, would that be what will happen here unless some pop picks you up, you know? I don't know. Then we really got serious with it, you know. We got. What, that's what you're saying that we would have just broke up. Yeah, broke just drifted into all the band things. Oh no, so. no, we would have kept trying. It's oh, so this is like the serious line-up this time then. Was yeah. It? yeah, yeah. For the last couple of years, it has been serious. Yeah. Um, we probably would have. Re- resorted to putting out our own record of sub pop Yeah. And did you want to get on sub pop? I have never even heard of sub pop yeah. when we, we were dealing with them at first. So they, So, so you yeah. just like existing like in some backwater town, just drifting through bands. Mm-hmm. Right. Listen to the melody part. Yeah, they saw sort of big bands in your town then. You're the only band, You're the, only, only, bands, the yeah. only alternative band within 100 miles, 60 miles or so. How far away is Olympia anyhow? Like 80 miles? Uh, 40, 50 miles. So it's Olympia, the nearest town. Yeah, the yeah. alternative type of music. You're all from the same town then, the whole band? No. no, we're not. Chris and I were living in Aberdeen during the time that we started the band. Aberdeen. In yep. Aberdeen, which yeah. is... Yeah, no. It's on the Pacific Ocean. Oh, it's actually on the coast. Is it? Yeah. 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 Was it a fishing town is it all? A logging a logging to or logging? Logging. Cutting down problem. trees. Oh yeah. Oh, right. um, lumberjack. <laughs> you <the> yeah. <laughs> don't call them lumberjacks.
0: They are called loggers. Yeah. We don't. there's no trees left. In England, to top down. Yeah, so. they want to cut down the, <laughs> yeah. the
3: last of the trees. Yeah. And, and the environmentalists and the industrialists are going at it. You know, Washington is supposed to be the evergreen state? And it's not it's a clear cut state, all these naked hills and yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's all for the mining dollar. So you'd have either play played in groups or cut trees down then. I don't know. You really yeah. that's why it smashed guitar because tr- a beautiful tree <laughs> it was destroyed with <laughs> fucking guitars, and might as well do it in. So what would you have done if you were in the bands? Um keep trying in another band. Yeah, I don't so you just probably... I can probably say I've never learned the fine art of logging. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> how what to do I it. Be, mm-hmm. I'd be an industrial painter made <laughs> <paid> batteries.
0: I <Yeah. laughs> So you'd just be sat in the bedroom playing your guitar many
3: otherwise? Yeah, exactly. It's exactly what I did. <laughs> sat in my bedroom. And well, what does everyone else do that sound? Just chops trees down. Chuck trees down, drink, have sex, <laughs> talk about having sex and drinking. Do people ever go anywhere else in that town or just stay there all the time? Just stay there. Yeah. They wither away. What do people think of you actually going to New York and Queen and stuff like that? You know, yeah. Do people think that's a bit of a weird thing to do? Or are people impressed or jealous? Or, oh, right. Yeah. Anything out of the normal. Yeah. So do people stop in the street and say, you know, what's New York like? <laughs> they say, get a haircut, fucker. <laughs> like, Fuck you. Is that what people say? I thought, yeah. Oh, sure. America's long hair. Yeah. Cool. I they going? No, they have long back. They have yeah. Back long in the back. Bi-level. Oh, yeah. Bi-level. So you look like, respectful for the fronts and things. Yeah. Yeah. Cropped short on top and rebelliously long <laughs> in the back. <laughs> <laughs> So is this your first national tour this then? Yes it is. What do you think it's all in Is it a good escape? I love it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm seeing America for free while well, I'm working. What, two nights? Yeah. I'm two hours a night. It's that You just see a lot of people's uh, bedroom floors across America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm surprised that I'm not homesick yet. Yeah, I how it.
0: could you get homesick in such an awful sounding town, you yeah. know? Well, we well, actually, the way. We, oh yeah, we ah, move, the way. yeah yeah. yeah. Where do you live
3: now in Seattle? Oh, I live cool. in the town that was close, the next closest town from, from Mount Olympia. Olympia. Oh yeah. right, that's where that that K Records is in. Right. right? Yeah. 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 Calvin's a good friend of mine. Oh right, yeah. And is that a good town? That one is that. Yeah, that's great town. Yeah. yeah. The college type town yeah. of Washington, yeah.
0: A lot of hippies yeah. there. Oh, I the yeah.
3: Liberals. Liberals, yeah. Is it more of a liberal yeah. town than Seattle oh. is? Uh, it's, it's Seattle sounds Calvary quite maybe. a liberal sort of place, from the outside. What? Seattle sounds like quite a good sort of place. It is. Say, yeah. It is. It is. The is just a smaller version, yeah. Yeah. And how far is that from Seattle? Yeah. Oh. Seven miles? Yeah, that's yeah. That's right. what, what do you write your songs about, or? It's hard to really say. Uh, anger, negativity, uh, what, what sort of things. You get angry about just from where you're from and like the way people think. Basically, are things, yeah. Right. A typical punk rock <laughs> attitude. They what makes you angry? Because you have escaped. Something you should be like celebrating getting <laughs> out of it or is it just frustrating to watch what everyone else does? Um, I didn't quite understand that. Is it frustrating to watch all you mates yeah, to turn back at home or I mean where, where did you get the anger from now? Because you're out there aren't you really? Yeah. I imagine I am becoming happier because yeah. I am escaping. Yeah. I find myself sometimes making things hard for myself so I can still have A little bit of anger. (laughs) What is that? Like what sort of things you do? Just purposely fuck things up? Or I don't know. A few subconscious things, I suppose. Just a
0: few.
3: Yeah. Conflicts with people, maybe. Well if you try and get people's backs up to play? (laughs) So you're writing road songs now, then? (laughs) <laughs> right. Another night and another camp. <laughs> another bottle of beer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Have you written much stuff since you left Aberdeen and started like, touring? Um, I've written most of these, mostly the material on this record, out of Aberdeen. Yeah. So these live songs from different era than they really are, aren't they? They're, they're from like a second era. It yeah. was like a demo tape era with a bunch of songs. And those were written in Aberdeen. All the, all the material on this record was written in Olympia. Yeah. So what was the first? page of songs, a uh, Oh. Even more anger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you were that yourself, didn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. The second year is just like writing from memory like. Sort of yeah. <laughs> That's true. And, they're, and they're getting, the songs are getting poppier and poppier as I get happier. Yeah! There you go. What are they about? Yeah, yeah. They're about... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably conflicts in relationships. Yeah. I don't know. Emotions and feelings. Yeah. Emotions with human beings. So, you said once, Chris? I was emotions and feelings. Sure. I mean, it, when I write a song, the lyrics are the least, most important thing, so I don't dwell on them at all. I can yeah. actually have two or three different subjects within a song, and then the title will mean nothing. Yeah. To to the rest of the music. Just so
0: like the whole band knows which song is going to be on the list. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so right. Jab, who are we yeah. we
3: going to name the song? go. I'll I'll right about on. a girl. Okay. Right. So <laughs> the song is about a girl. Yeah. I already yeah. have most of the lyrics down. And.
0: Yeah, so that was uh, about half of uh, of John's interview there with with Nirvana. So if, if listeners want to hear the the full version, where where do they go and to to hear that, John?
1: Yeah, well, I've got a YouTube channel where I've got a lot of interviews up, uh, some old interviews and some new stuff filmed on Zooms. Uh, I guess if you just Google John Rob Navarre interview and look in the video section, it'll turn up on my channel, which is the John Rob channel. So and then just subscribe, and there's loads of other music stuff. It's it's all there's, a, there's a, quite a lot of stuff your listeners will like on there. We've got, a Rev, you know, John Reverend's on there. He gave me a great lockdown interview, sleeping Mods. I put up a, an old Ian Brown interview. It's about 90 minutes. It's a really interesting interview. Um Yeah, so there's loads of stuff. It's just, I just put stuff up. When I get a minute to do it, I put it up. So there's about 100, 200 things on there at the moment. And mm-hmm. eventually I'll probably just archive all my interviews onto that, yeah, you know, portal.
0: And uh, yeah, we'll we'll probably we'll put the link in the description to the episodes if you do want to check those out, go and have a listen. Um, so I guess just kind of I want to talk a bit more generally about the impact Nirvana had, um, and I think for me it's more as much for me it's about the long term impact because you know around the time that you were interviewing Kurt Cobain and Co, I was in primary school. In fact. I was in primary school being taught by your your partner, Maria Cosgrove, yeah, yeah. Um, that's which, weird, which has always it? messed with my head. <laughs> we didn't know this until, until we'd known each other quite a while. I think, maybe Maria came out I was like, oh, hello, Mrs., Miss Cosgrove. <laughs> what are yes, you please. doing? I'm, I'm, with, I'm with... Well, she's, she'll always be Miss Cosgrove to me. So Yeah, I you know.
1: No, no, it's, it's actually really cool, yeah. yeah. And I,
0: I actually didn't discover Nirvana probably until 10 years after you'd done that interview. You remember a kid at school gave me... Uh, a tape that on the one side had Nirvana on the other side had Slipknot and at the time I was into Britpop and Oasis and Blur and he was like some heavier stuff you should be listening to you know so for me it's something that came further down the line but shows that longer kind of term impact they had but just going back to when they broke through you know you did your interview uh you know they they started getting sort of noticed with the Bleach album but you know what was the kind of indie well not so much indie but more the rock scene like at the time and what do you think? It was about nirvana that shook things up
1: there was was definitely there's kind of different rock scenes going on one there in america there's this amazing post hardcore scene sonic youth bottle surfers uh steve albini's band big black and it was it was kind of and they were like the parallel scene to the scene i was in in england which like membranes uh three johns nightingales big flame even wedding Present were in that scene for a bit um so, so there was that it was very underground, and there was no sense it was ever going to go anywhere. In fact, Nirvana's label Sub Pop was came out of a fanzine, which Bruce Pavitt did, which was writing about all the American and some of the British underground music at the time. Then he started putting records out, and that started to become Sub Pop. Is always meant to just be a cult label, a collector's label. Mm. And then, then then it just it just took off, and it just went. It got bigger, and then suddenly bang, it went insane. Um so, but there's also the other scene, which is the glam poodle metal scene. I hate the way it's called the glam scene, because to me, glam was a British glam in the 70s. It, it wasn't all these bands like Poison or Motley Crue, who were pretty rubbish, really. <laughs> you Because know, the, and, and, the, the British stuff was actually genuinely quite camp, and even the bands like Sweet, who sort of aren't really that camp, they're much more camp than Motley Crue are. And they, they, you could tell all those kind of American so-called glam bands, they're, they're they're all like Trump. It's Trump rock, isn't it? You know all those bands, mm. Kiss, corporate all rock, scene, all Yeah, they're all the people that you know. If you ask them what their politics were, they go, goddamn Donald Trump." You know, <laughs> it's 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 just not a world that I can understand at all. You can hear it in their music, and that's even worse. I mean, I could forgive. I mean, I always separate the art from the artist, but when when the when the artists, you know, if you're a Trump rocker and your music sounds like Trump rock, that's a lot worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have to hang around with these people. You know. It's like like Morrissey talks rubbish these days and and it's it's depressing to hear him talking, but if he made if he made a great record, it would be a great record, you know, and I could separate it but i would still I'll still say you're just you're talking bollocks man you you just i talk talking rubbish, but um I don't have to sit in a tall bus and listen to you drivelling on I'll challenge what you say but but I'll still but your records are different I'll still like you know I'll separate it so, but the trouble is those. A lot of those American rockers, their music actually sounded like their politics. So mm. when I listen to Kiss, it just sounds like it—it it, it just sounds like a cash machine, you know. And it's of course there's a skill of making money and things, and that's great now. But to listen to, it's definitely dull, isn't it?
2: Mm. So
1: to Nirvana it sort of came out. There at the tail end of that American post-hardcore underground scene, but then when they got massive, they became. They were a challenge to these big bands. So you get, I suppose, the in-between band was Guns and Roses who were huge in America, and then Nirvana came along sort of took their crown from them. And there was tension, but but it wasn't... Actually, interesting, it didn't really come from Guns N' Roses because they embraced Nirvana, didn't they? They they gave them a lot of big ups. And it was Kurt Cobain who said something about them at um, some music awards kind of do. And I thought, you know, it's actually quite cool that... Uh, in a way that um, Guns N' Roses ceded their crown, they were kind of saying virtually as much as Axel Rose ever possibly could be in Axel Rose. Mm. These are the guys now. You know, they've they've taken it with you know I mean, I mean we can still play stadiums but these these are the, the, the hot band in town. You know and I guess you probably interviewed Guns and Rose. I mean I interviewed him um, Slash and but Slash, Slash is a really cool guy. You know he's, he's you know he's from Stoke don't you? Stoke, yes, yes you
0: know, yeah, uh second is he the second most famous person from Stoke. No he's more famous than Robbie Williams, isn't he? We'll, we'll give him that.
1: Yeah I mean w- although uh Worldwide, well, they're pretty, yeah. Robbie Williams never got the America D, that's the difference.
0: No, there you go. Well,
1: you know, in other countries, my my mate actually worked with Robbie Williams and he was telling me all the figures the other day. He was going, Jesus, it's, it's just like he's the biggest selling star ever in Brazil or somewhere. You know, these countries, you think, <laughs> I didn't even know people there would know who he was and that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, but he's very humble, slash, and, he, and he's great talk about Stoke and he goes back every year to see his uncles and aunties and goes and sits in the pub and, you know, and all that. So, so I liked him, and, and they had some good tunes. Guns and Roses—they were better than Motley Crew. They, 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 they could write a great pop song, you know, and in a weird, almost cabaret kind of way sometimes. Wasn't it?
2: Mm, <laughs> but
1: Nirvana was a different deal, wasn't it? It was that was a different set of gears, wasn't it? It was more intense, it was heavier, uh, but somehow made into pop music. So Teen Spirit is very intense, very heavy. It is heavy. I don't care if people say, yeah, but it's not as heavy as do do do. It is pretty heavy compared to what was mainstream before, but it's also a brilliant pop song. And mm-hmm. the story I love about that is that Butch Fig when he brought in his producer, went down to see them rehearse, and he did 12 songs. He's going, these are great, these are great. But, you know, you go to need another couple, because sometimes you go in the studio and every band knows this. The song just doesn't come together. You can't get it to work. So you need a spare as a backup. You see, if you've got anything else, and they you go, mm, you've got that really crap song that we don't like. He goes... He goes, well, let's have a listen to it anyway, and he starts playing. He goes, whoa, 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 stop, stop! That's the greatest song I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> hmm. They were, not even going to put it on the album. It's the that's same, amazing, Undertones, isn't it? Undertones in it, and uh, Teenage Kicks is the same story in it. They just hmm. thought it's this kind of rubbish knockoff song. And as soon as, um, I think it was Terry Hulia, that said, uh, "Oh God, that's just amazing! That's a stunning piece of music." You keep. But bands, bands are the worst judges of their own music, aren't they? You, you fall in love with one of your own songs that everyone else thinks is just utter rubbish. It doesn't get at all. And the song that you just chuck in the bin or do a really crap version of is the piece of gold. <laughs> mm. well,
0: wasn't it around the time Kurt said that, you know, on Nevermind, he wanted to kind of sound like a cross between The Knack and even stuff like Bay City Rollers? But kind of cross yeah. that with heavier stuff like Black Sabbath, and you think that that probably comes across in stuff like Smells Like Teen Spirit, doesn't it? Because it is there is a pop element to that.
1: It's, it's pop music. but There's nothing wrong with pop music. Pop music is some of some of the greatest uh, social, political, emotional statements made in music are made in pop music. This idea that the underground and indie labels are the only place that great art gets made is, is also rubbish, isn't it? I mean, what about the Beatles? You know, one of the greatest bands of all time. They're on EMI. You can't get any more Buckingham Palace than EMI, and thank God they're on EMI. Otherwise, mm. if we'd never got out of Liverpool. We wouldn't have heard them. I, I just hate that snobbery. I mean, if the stuff's good, everyone should, everyone should have a chance to hear it. You know, and that's what's great. That Nirvana, they went for sub pop, they went on to a uh, Geffen, and they, they, they. And I remember when that album came out and again. The cassette was going around about four weeks before, and people go, "Whoa." This is amazing. Have you ever heard this? They've actually, it's, it's, it's the best pop record I've ever heard for ages in in those terms. Mm. And people going, they could be as big as Sonic Youth, you know, because that was the ceiling. Nobody got any bigger than Sonic Youth, then 50,000, whatever it was, worldwide sales, or Bottle Surfers, you who know, were like second biggest at that time, 30,000 worldwide sales. There's no, no way your heavy guitar band is going to break that because you couldn't get the radio. And then, but the, the arm came out. It went in the charts to start going down because it ran out of copies, didn't press enough, did they? They had no idea hmm. yeah. that they had this thing that was going to go crazy. So they, they couldn't press it fast enough. It, it was just going and, and it's a great moment, isn't it, when you see suddenly a brilliant band go straight up the greasy pole. It's it's so hard to do, you know, and it's and it's and when it happens, it's a the cultural effect is fantastic, isn't it? But no. it but
0: it wasn't an overnight success for them, though, was it? Because Bleach obviously went on to sell, you know, a significant amount of copies, but only after. Never mind.
1: Well, I, yeah, out. I saw them. On the, I saw them on the Bleach tour. I saw them play in Manchester. In fact, they to stay at my house in Manchester when they when they were doing the Bleach tour. They came in the autumn after interviews again touring with Tad, and uh, Tad actually stayed at my house and they did karaoke. My house was tiny. They actually virtually lie on top of each other in the front room. It was, mm. it was such a squash. Sleeping under the table. So I think Nirvana went, had to go to stay in the, in the bed and breakfast could comfort everybody in, you know, and they played the international in Manchester and there was about 40 people at the gig, you know. This is, mm-hmm. this is literally, can only be about six months before the whole thing went berserk. You, there, there is, there was overnight success. It was five years of slog, then bang, they were huge, and it was difficult. It's difficult to handle that, you know, because you you go, you don't know where you're at, you know, you don't know, and it's, it's interesting with Kurt Cobain, isn't it because he used. The power, half of them used the power really well. So half of them used the power to turn people onto really obscure bands like the Vaseline's. And he covered their songs four times, which basically set them up for life. Mm. You know, Jesus was something, amazing song, I mean, great song. And, you know, then he turned people to Lead Belly, you know, in the Pies when he did the Acoustical, which is actually my favorite vinyl record. Mm. And then he would talk about K records. So he turned people onto the American Underground uh, and then people like Henry Rollers got a career out of it because I mean Henry's amazing anyway. But then he became mainstream. It's the Rowlands band; we're in the top twenty albums in America. I mean mm. that would never happen before because Kurt was a massive black flag fan. So I mean that's what's great about the album because yes, it's got black flag in, but yes, it's got basic rollers in there. But I say it's got more the Beatles in the basic rollers. But basic rollers were a great pop band. I mean we're sniffy about them here because we, we just remember them being a bit, bit you know, the Naff Tartan thing going on, you know. Mm uh the, the half mass trousers and that but but they made a series of really great pop records and it eternally annoys people to this day if i put on my uh, facebook page they're a massive influence on punk and people go no they weren't no they weren't hmm. they were dee Ramones favorite bands you know and the Ramones formed to be uh, a New York version of the bass seat rollers the Sex Pistols were really into them you know they now the Marco McLaren was kind of modeling it you know make the clothes they have a style you know they're a bit of a street gang da-da-da. and this this is it's quite a lot of punk, if you speak to people involved in a lot of these bands early on, their name does crop up a lot more than people would like to believe so it's hmm. not super hard to believe that Kurt Cobain would be into and they were huge they were bigger in America for one year in 1976 they, 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 were, they outsold the Beatles, you know, they were huge they were playing to 60,000 people a night getting paid 100 quid <laughs>
0: <laughs> So what, what, what were your uh, favourite songs on Nevermind then? It's
1: teen Spirit. I know it's super obvious, but it's just a killer song, isn't it? It's just, it's it's utterly magic, and the dynamics of it, where it explodes, it really does explode. It's just uh, the sound of it. The lyrics are great. The the video's a really snarky video. It's good. This, even the sound of it is really good. And I know it's it's they polished it as much as you possibly could without losing the song.
0: That's mm. not very easy, mm. is
1: it, to do? I think mean, I like the way they deliberately set it. the end they set out to make a record that was going to cross over but still keep the core what they were about and i i love it i love the next album i think that's a really great record as well and i think steve uh, steve albini did a great job of the sound on it and i don't i don't actually find it people go oh it's a very difficult sounding record but just it's got that zeppelin sound big drums lots of space great dynamics it's 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 actually very mainstream Heavy rock records, you know. It's, mm. Well, Heart
0: Shaped uh, Box is quite a, it's, it's quite. It's pop, isn't it? It's dark pop, yeah. but it's pop.
1: It's just pop, and it's. I don't understand this shame of pop. Is I mean, loads of records I love are pop records. David Bowie was a pop star, wasn't he? Mark Bowie mm. was a pop star. Mm. They, were, they were. They came from the underground, and they had certain artful underground attributes. But their skill was to put it right into the mainstream, wasn't it? And that Magic Kingdom's for everybody, and it's not just for ten hipsters. In the hmm. northern courts of Manchester, I think
0: they're better than everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the music there. we talked kind of in depth, but I guess around the same time, you know, Kurt did become a tabloid staple, you know, mainly due to the relationship with, with Courtney Love. And, you know, you can see parallels between things that happened with him and then things that happened with Pete when he met uh, Kate Moss and Amy Winehouse kind of after him. So, you know, again, I... You know, I I wasn't aware of this. I wasn't aware of Nirvana at the age of seven or eight. You know, I found them afterwards. So what was it like for you as someone who'd got to know the band, you know, and had been there from kind of the start, to see all that start to unravel a little bit?
1: Well, it was sad, really, because this is the other half of the story. It just, it just kind of slid into rock, rock and roll car crash, didn't it? You know, drugs, um, tabloids, you know, thing. It just... There's, that's The thing there was like a battle, wasn't it? It was an internal battle for him. He, part of him really wanted to be underground, and part of him, of course, wants to the mainstream, but he seemed to embrace all the all the bad bits of the mainstream, you know, and that, that rock and roll lifestyle thing. It was chaotic, it was messy, and actually not, not that interesting either, is it, you know? The whole story sort of masked the utter genius, you know? The, the brilliance of his songwriting, that amazing, captivating voice... And it, it was still flash up. It wasn't like it wasn't like his muse dried up because like I say, the acoustic MTV record is an amazing record. You know, the more you strip that band down, the more fascinating they got. And that version of Man of Sold the World, God, that's an ace version. Mm, mm. It's like the cover of the Lulu version, isn't it, which which is interesting. he's he's so immersed in music, he didn't get the Bowie version, which obviously he loved, but he actually found the Lulu version and did his version of that because her voice had that raucous croak on it as well. So the way he intones his version is definitely taken from from hers, and I think that's really cool because because he didn't have any. I don't think he had any snobbery, you know. His music was music as basic rollers or black flag. It's all it's all great stuff, you know. It doesn't or Lulu or Bowie. It's just it's not like oh you can't like this, you can't like that, and that's probably what makes them a magical band because they don't work within the very very narrow parameters of being super cool. So, but but you could see there's not going to be a happy ending here. You'd hear stories, you know. You know the drug thing was escalating, the depression thing, and and the relationship was well, obviously going to be quite uh, stormy, well, uh, relationship because they, they were both quite um, probably quite difficult people and things, you know. And so it's it for us actually, it was it was less Pete Doherty and Kate Moss, but more Sid and Nancy,
2: mm. and
1: and that was I mean Courtney was totally obsessed with Nancy Spungen, and she tried to play her in the film, didn't she, in the Sin Nancy film, the Alex Cox film, um, so, so, and you can see this, is like, the, it was playing out that story yet again, and you can see you know, with, with a more intense backdrop, because they were bigger, you know, they were bigger in America, so everybody's watching, the tabloids are in there, it's not good, I'd say this, another thing, I don't know if Mark put it, he's think he actually, I think he did in the end, but he found that, he, he went to Kurt Cobain's house the day that Kurt shot himself, didn't he? Mm. So mm. he'd gone round there to see Kurt because he said he had, he said he woke up and he, he felt something wasn't right, so he thought I better go see Kurt because Kurt had a big house and they weren't living in the same flat at that point. And he went round, knocked on the door, walked around the garden, couldn't see him, went back, just fell asleep again. and nodded out on on, on the drugs because still having to the drugs then. And then, then the phone starts going crazy, and found out that that's the tragedy happened. You know, but I think in a sense it was a tragedy that was waiting to happen because it, because he yeah. had the shadows of depression. A few of his uncles had committed suicide, and that there was a darkness that was already there and things. And I think part part to play in it as well. And this is interesting talking to you know Northerners. Ian Curtis is is in that story as well. He was very aware of Joy Vision and that end, you know, how that ended and stuff. And so I think all those things are playing in there. But God, it's it's an utterly tragic story. And the guy out of Earth actually sold him the gun, didn't he? I mean, if if you've got guns, drugs, um, depression, melancholy, um, pressure, disappointment, you add all that together and it's, it's, it's gonna, it's not going to end well, is it? You know, and it's, mm, mm. I remember, I remember seeing the story the way I saw the story. This is very often time. I got up in the morning and the C-Fax, is all, I always put the C-Fax on the telly, which was like, I'll explain this to your listeners. C-Fax is what, like an internet on the TV. I, suppose. No, I, you know, me- the I remember it well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it sounded all that. And it used to come up in real time, didn't it? So it would go, and the story came up, and he goes, uh, "Body found in Kirk Cobain's house." Thought, "Oh God, has he shot somebody? You know, maybe some mad fans got in there and they thought mm. he's somebody robbing mm. the house, got shot." Then he goes, "The next story is like the police are there, you know, and it's, it was moving up from item ten to nine to eight, and then he got when he got about an hour later, which is about eleven o'clock in the morning, it says uh, Kirk Cobain's, being taken to hospital, shot wounds, and he still wasn't actually dead at that point. In the story, well, obviously he was dead in real life." but um, so, so it kind of broke really slowly for us now within you know it's on twitter before you've even killed yourself
0: <laughs> yeah no it is and you know sky news swarming around the house and stuff like that i suppose that i imagine that happened didn't it in back in 94 there was still that that kind of hyper obsessed american media and the circus that kind of mm. comes with that do you do you remember do you remember so, so you saw you kind of first saw it on cfax i mean Were you then, you know, called in to write stuff for Sounds or, you know, kind of what what, I guess you were pressed into action as a music journalist who'd who'd met the band as well?
1: Well, this is the weird thing, because I think Sounds had stopped by then. So uh, Sounds went bust about the same year, actually. Mm. It might even have been about a month before. That's probably why I sat around in the morning, nothing to do, because uh, Sounds had gone, you know, because Sounds just went and it got shut down at 11 o'clock in the morning. I got a train from Manchester to London with a, I was taking a piece in I thought I'd have a little trip to London so I had this huge piece of written on on new sound system out Agent Sherwood 8,000 word mega piece it's going to be the next week's cover and I got there got to the office and everyone's heads were in their hands I was going what's up and they go they, they just shut us down 10 minutes ago <laughs>
0: <laughs> and
1: that and that was the end of sound so we trashed the office and then mm. we went mm. to the pub and, and I'll always remember an eternally I remember Steve Mack came down for the enemy and he was heartbroken, you know. It's meant to be a rival paper, isn't it? But it's but not for the writers, you know. So there's a few writers of other papers came to commiserate, and, and Steve always said he, he always... Was, I mean, the enemy's obviously better payer than a bigger paper, but he always felt like a soundwriter at mm. heart. You know, you had the freedom, freelance freedom. So, but by then, the band had been sort of kidnapped by loads... in media turns by loads of people who didn't like him when they started. So all the I mean, most people writing about them that time because they were so massive were the kind of people who used to snigger, at, laugh at us at sounds for writing about dodgy rock bands, as, as they would put it. And suddenly, because the band was the biggest band in the world, they were champing them left, right, and centre. I mm. mean, not not all the writers, but there's quite a few of them. Thinking you, you don't like them. There's no way you like them. You know, you know, you know it, don't you, Rick? You you've been on papers, and you you know the career writers. You know, whatever's big, they're into it. You know, and the mistake probably that you made, like I make, is that. If you love bands, you can't pretend not to love them, and you can't pretend to love bands you don't really like. You, you can't get interested in stuff you're not interested in. Mm.
0: So, so, mm. so
1: if your scene goes out of fashion, you you just kind of go down with your scene, don't you?
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> very, very true. Yeah, that is very true. And,
1: and, but these other people, they're so manipulative uh, in the media. Suddenly, they become the biggest fan, and they get all the front covers and the interviews, and you're being pushed out away. So I didn't, do, I don't forget anything on Kurt Cobain when I died. So people didn't even, but all those kind of people media people aren't really that interested in the story. I had no idea that I was at the very beginning of the story, you know, and mm. the, and, mm. and, and also the, the pre-story because all those American bands are the scenes they came out of, there's only about me about three of the people that ever wrote about those bands, ever cared about them, you know, mm. you know the Bottle Surfers and the Big Blacks and all that, you know those those bands or Black Flag, nobody ever wrote about those bands. Was, you know, I'd say five of us would, would be into that kind of music, you know, it's, and it's. it's, it's but it got rewritten, they changed it, they changed the story. And you realize, very quickly, once you're in the media, you realize that everything you believed about the 60s and the 50s wasn't true either because the same process would have gone along. You know, mm. there would have been really innovative people who just weren't the right people. So they got shoved out the story, didn't they? Oh, and listen, it's, it, who, it's happening now with
0: naughty's nostalgia. I mean, you know, there's, yeah, there's you a glut of these podcasts now, of which we are one, but we, we, right. are the, we, we are the original and the genuine one of people claiming the noughties was the greatest scene ever, um, who, where were they at the time? What were they even doing, you know?
1: Oh, I've, I've seen that for years. You know, you know, when somebody dies or somebody breaks after years, people go, I always liked them. You go, you never went to their gigs. <laughs>
0: First time Amy Winehouse was on the cover of The Enemy was when she died. There's one for you. I mean, they were barely interested in her until that point. And I remember that because I wrote for them at the time. Joe
1: Strummer, the day he died, he got the front page of the the NME and Steve Sutherland did a, a masterpiece on him. He hated The Clash, you know, <laughs> and he's gone about our Joe. And they wouldn't review any of Joe Strummer's uh, latter-day latter records, and Mascarino's records, which are great records. Mm. You couldn't write about him. They're just People wouldn't let you write about him at all, would they? I could write about him at Sounds because... Um, but you know, when he was doing his stuff just after the clash, but, when, but by time, you know, years later, when he was doing all that later stuff, he, he was getting big. But the newspapers just wouldn't, they, it was yesterday's man, this kind mm, of attitude, didn't mm, it? And mm. you know, that he was treated like the way they would treat the levelers, a band that you, you just don't write about, you know. And you go, but there's pop culture going on there, there's a whole pop culture thing. If you don't want to write about it, you go and get a writer that does because you're meant to be a music paper, not a fanzine, mm, you know. Mm. I try to do that on the side. I mean, the stuff I like and the stuff I don't like, I just don't write about the stuff I don't like. I'll get someone else to write about it, you know. Because I'm fascinated with it. I'm fascinated by all talents and facets of pop culture. I don't have to enjoy the music, but I want to know how it gets made and I want to know why it's there. And it's, I'm interested in it, you know. Mm. It's a great thing. I, read, I remember reading an interview with Iggy Pop once and he said... He, he, when he was hanging out with Bowie, Bowie would be in the studio until midnight. They'd go and watch a gig, any gig, and Bowie would be in there watching him, watching it, working it out. Then they'd go back to the studio and apply some of it into the tracks. So, so whether, so, so now if Bowie was here now, he'd be like watching the grime seem like a hawk or the drill seem like a hawk. Not to make a drill record, but just to understand his motivation, his intensity. You know, and see if his intensity matched up to that intensity. And mm. I think that's important if you're a music artist. You know, you don't. You, you can make. I mean, you could be like Shirley Collins, to be 85 and make brilliant folk records, and she makes some amazing two albums in the last five years. You know, she's an 85 year old grandmother, um, but her music sounds as intense and as up to date as any the record. She's working with people who totally understand music and find a way of couching that spirit into a modern way, and I think that really works. You don't. You don't mm. copy the sounds. You don't wear. A pair of chunky training shoes to make yourself look hip or whatever, but you you understand the energy of the music, and and, and your music matches that energy, that the sound. Mm. That's mm. how that's how you maintain a relevance. You know, you don't try and be that other person, but you understand why that works. You know, and those people are good at it, aren't they? You know.
0: Mm. I, I guess I just want to bring it back to to Candivana kind of and get a kind of final final question really around you know the band arguably became even bigger when Kurt died and their their kind of myth grew from there and the legend of the band kind of grew to the point that, you know, five years later, I'm just getting turned on to them. I think even in places like Manchester, you know, there was a whole kind of uh, mosher scene around kind of Athletics Palace and places like that that I think probably isn't quite there now in the way that it used to be in places like Manchester. But, you know, Manchester was a sea of Nirvana hoodies and things like that, well into the the kind of 2000s. Manchester's
1: always been a big rock like Liverpool is, Liverpool and Manchester, both big rock and metal cities, the thing is they're, they're, they're disguised because they never really had a big rock and metal band that's come out of either city, you know, there's been bands that kind of been got to be quite big cult bands, those kind of musics, but never huge, you know, we don't we never had a Nirvana coming out of Manchester, you know so people don't know that scene there, but if you go to certain parts of the city centre on a Saturday afternoon, well pre-pandemic those kids are still around, you know mm. I mean, after Nirvana it Kind of dissipates a lot like different scenes. You had the Green Day kind of pop punk revival, you know, Green Day can still play in stadiums, and then you had the more Marilyn Manson, there's another Percy really talk about now, and it but yeah, he's, he's been <laughs> firmly
0: cancelled now,
1: <laughs> even though it's not gone through court yet. I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's a very unpleasant character, but um, before, but, but let's let's get this thing done in court first before we chuck the bucket in, you know. I'm, I'm not sticking up for what he's done. I think uh trial by Twitter is a very dangerous thing, isn't it? Mm. Um I mean I, I know I know he's an odious character, but he does make great records. Um so so and that became a big scene as well. On the, and so there's always different types of like metals, and then but people like Tools, well, you know, have number one arms all over the world. You see loads of kids with their shirts on. So it's an eternal scene, but Nirvana just it was it was their turn to captain the ship in a way. But but Kirk Cobain had everything, didn't he? Because he, he, he had a great voice. He's great. Ta- songwriting talent, amazing um, uh, energy on the stage, especially in the early days. Just that, that jumping backwards over the amps thing. I mean, I, I did some mad stuff on stage, but you won't, I wouldn't jump backwards over anything. <laughs> <bringing> you back <laughs> doing that. <laughs> and, and also, he looked like Jesus. He had that. He had amazing. He, had, he looked great, didn't he? And there's that really great photograph that Martin Goodacre took of him at, when he was at the NME, uh, where he's got the eyeliner on and he just with the guitar which I think Martin sold for 200 grand and bought himself flat in Berlin now, he. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think he just went backstage at some other gig and, and Kirk Cobain just sat there in the settee. Martin was really drunk and he's just taking pictures so he could remember where he was the next day. He just went snap, snap, snap. The next day he looked at his pictures go. he goes, oh my God. I didn't even know I was sat next to Kirk Cobain. And then he goes again, he goes, oh my God, that's the greatest picture ever. It is. It's an amazing picture. I mean, it's, it's the iconic picture you'll see on every shirt. He, mm, he, just mm. took it a, he just took it as a snap like that. But you see, this, that, this, a photographer's either very good at getting a painting, a picture of a scene. I mean, a great photographer. It's not like it's not, it's not an iPhone shot, is it? A great photograph. There's two, th- there's two things about a great photographer. It's, it's, it's been able to make the picture like a painting because you just couch it perfectly, and it's being there. And that's what Martin did that night. He was sat backstage next to Kurt Cobain. So he wasn't like he went to the gig and went home sensibly, He was actually right in the heart of the rock and roll culture with his camera and just taking pictures. And that's why that's why he deserves that award. And he is a great photographer on top of that as well. So, um, yeah, so he had that look and he doesn't look. I mean, Kurt was iconic. Unfortunately, I think um, in rock and roll, death adds a romance, uh, which, uh, which isn't a good thing, I don't think, you know, that. The, the, the Young Martyr thing, which is so beloved in rock and roll, which is an odd, odd idea, isn't it? Mm, Ian Curtis had it, mm. well, but I guess because those people never had the opportunity to get old and boring. They didn't have the seven bad years and the ten mediocre albums before they found the mojo again, did they? You know, it's... So, so, you know, Ian Curtis never got to the eighth Joy Division album where he, he couldn't write words anymore or his voice got shot out. They burned brightly and then they stopped. I mean, I suppose in life terms it would be better if they could just disappear off off the face of the earth <laughs> like, like jim morrison did <laughs> mm,
0: mm. so that's so that's kind of been an amazing kind of trip down memory lane in terms of all the things on uh nirvana obviously 90 miles an hour is, is always the deal when uh when you come on the show right and i'm sure listeners have been yeah. able to keep up because i've certainly kept up i guess just to kind of bring it back into the the kind of now just to kind of wrap up the show is we've talked about it's so one of your early interviews there and, and one of your most famous. But, you know, your finger's always still on the pulse of new music. And like me, you're obsessed with hearing the next thing. So what are you are listening to at the moment? T- tell me some bands I don't know about.
1: Well, there's a really good scene in Holland, actually, of bands. Um, it started this band called Rats on Rafts, who were really good. And now there's a whole micro scene. About 10 or 11 bands that come on the back of that. They, they, they kind of get known in the UK as well. Don't, I really like a lot of stuff that Heavenly are doing at the moment. You know, um, I think those young bands that Jeff keeps finding up the Calder Valley are really good. Neither neither uh, Leeds or Manchester like it is up there. Mm. There's an amazing band in Russia called Short Paris, who are like an industrial pop band in a way, with a singer who sings in a falsetto and he sounds like this great post-punk band called The Associates, really pure voice. But they're very political. And mm. they've, they sort of capture... Weird state of flux that Russian youth's in at the moment because I don't know if you've ever been to Russia, but I was. I've was, no, been, Mos- been to Moscow a few times. And I was there about a year and a half ago, and it, it's quite amazing now. It's um, it's it's a it's the hipster capital of Europe. It's nothing. It's not austere at all. Uh, the first time I went there, it was very money, and there's a lot of money. You know, very flash money discotheque. You know, but they were actually discotheques as well, Not like discos or clubs. And you know, a lot lot of for, fake foot, not even fake fur, but proper fur. Probably got a bear wrestled in the park by the boyfriend <laughs> kind of coats. But then the last time I went, it's got loads of vegan cafes and hipsters and into like, in, into like drinking coffee and listen to jazz and listen to like left field rock. Really big for, scene for it in Moscow. Um, and short Paris kind of skeptic like that as well. This kind of new politics of Russian youth, you know, they, they don't really like the system they got now. Although, weirdly, the the we don't often you know, like here we always no matter how good or bad, we don't get really good prime ministers. But if we did, we'd still slag them off because we're British and that's just what we do. You know, we could have the greatest prime minister ever who makes everything really brilliant for us. So we still slag them off because we're mm. just cynical, aren't we? We we don't follow leaders, that's the way we are in this country, you know. <laughs> but in Russia, it's different. They like leaders, you know. So so even the most political person who doesn't like the system, oh it's just it's terrible in this country, but but Putin, he's good. And they they see Putin as somebody who holds the country together, and it's. Well, if you're British, you don't understand it, but you have to understand that you can't you can't put your perspective of the world onto another country. You know, mm. just because I think that living in Manchester, England, doesn't mean they have to think that living in Moscow, Russia, you know. So and it's a, so and it's twenty four hour and it's and the culture is amazing. Low the band scene is is mind blowing. Loads of great bands there, so that that's really good. And what what is tending to find now. It's that thing that Anglo American pop culture acts where we dominated the, the music discourse for decades. And we're still looked on as being cool. I mean, Moscow, in, in Moscow, I, I actually get recognised on the streets of Moscow because I'm the bloke who writes about bands from Manchester. So you can imagine how big the bands are. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's, um, so, but, but it's, it's, it's going to fade because every country's got amazing scenes in it. We're we looked as being cool, but they go, we have cool scene as well now. Germany's the same, they got good underground, well, they got their own music there now, but they still see the British as being slightly cooler. But, but Brexit is going to make it difficult because, you know, if our, if our next generation bands can't get into Europe because they can't afford it, they were shooting ourselves in the foot, you know, because they'll just replace us with all their own local bands, mm. which I know in, in the scheme of things is probably fairer. But, but I'm, I'm British and I love British culture. I think we're, we're really good at it. And I, it would be sad to see all the 16, 17-year-old kids coming out the the side of the pandemic stuck because they can't get into Europe. I mean, they can't all just go around in circles playing the UK. They just, just run out of people. And playing in Europe, I mean, it's, it's a worldwide scene now. It's all right for Roger Dolce to say he went to Europe in the 60s. He played 50 gigs in Europe in 10 years. It wasn't really that much a big part of the Who's career curve. And now you, you, you have to go to these music showcases. You have to do the festivals in Europe. That's the modern model. Mm. That's how you get to be mm. a big band.
0: No, it's, it's shocking, isn't it? The way that, in 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 all the noise and confusion of that deal, musicians just got completely overlooked. But I, I suppose you know, tragic, but also understandable because there are you know there are complete shambles, aren't they? The current government.
1: There are lots of shambles, and they don't. They, they also think, yeah, you know, music. They'll just do it anyway. You know, they they, they just think. They, they don't mind, you know, if you make it, they'll take all the tax off you. But as, as you're slogging them, I mean, you need a little bit of help. <laughs> you never get any it back. You know, And it's, it's not for me. It's, of course, I love touring Europe. We've had great times in Europe. But I'm prepared to go, OK, I'm nearly 60. I'll step back on that. But I'm sick about the young bands. You know, the, this, this is how it works now. You don't make it in England and then everyone in Europe starts buying your records, whatever, or listen to you on Spotify, whatever, whatever. You have to go there and earn it. You you have to go to um, Thailand Music Week and make an impact. You have to play a festival in Germany and make an impact. That's how you get known, especially mm. Germany because mm. Germany's about live music. You know, you can you, you can do all the other stuff. You can, you can have the funkiest Facebook page of the world, but if if you can't tour your band around Germany, I'm talking about rock, and not dance. You have you know, you've got no chance. You have got to get the support tours and the festivals out there
0: to mm. start going up mm. the rungs
1: of the ladder. You know. They like live music. I mean, Saturday night out in Germany for, for normal people virtually to go and see a band you've never heard of, just because mm. it's a good night out, you know. And when you're playing, you're on stage thinking, wow, look at this audience. These are people who never normally come to see a band like ours, you know, mm. and mm. and it's great. And I think it's a really cool thing because instead of being stuck as a weird little cult that plays these weird little cult fans, you get to play to normal people. And, of course, nobody's music's weird. It, it works... All the reasons it works, they get the chance. You get the chance to work. It's on normal people, you know. What's the bad thing about Britain? Is that everyone's just shoved in a corner, aren't they? You know, you know your place. Mm. Get over there. Mm. <laughs> so, what were the
0: names of the bands again? Because we'll put the links in the uh, in the description to the show.
1: Oh uh, well, the, the band in Russia is uh, Short Paris, which is all one word. It's it's quite a hard name to say, isn't it? The band, yeah. The, the band in Holland, the the band that started this new Dutch scene off in Holland is. Uh, Rats on rafts really good, band, they actually do sound a bit like sort of a quirky versus teardrop explodes crossed with sort of that Dutch kind of dissonance. The, the singer's actually half uh, Liverpool, half Rotterdam, so he's he, mm. it actually makes sense their sounds. There's a, but if you if you find that band you'll find the other scene that goes around them, yeah. And it's it's an underground scene in Holland as well, it's not mainstream, but they're getting quite big these bands across Europe, you know. If you go into these showcase events, they, they are the band that everybody's trying to get into seeing see and things. But yeah. I think, like nearly everywhere you go, you'll find stuff. I mean, you go, you look at Africa now. There's an amazing underground electronic music scene really dark, sparse uh, electronic tracks, but with a, with an African vibe to them, which which is amazing, you know. It? It's just because in Africa, uh, because it's actually it's it's Africa's. Is, uh, uh, my argument is, and I think it's going to take time to get proven. You know, China broke through now as being a superpower, then it's India. And then, but I think Africa's got all some, maybe, maybe some trade organizers, some version of Africa is the next one to go. It's, it's got a young population, uh, most educated population it's ever had. It's solving a lot of its problems. And this depends how the pandemic plays out, of course. Mm. But it's now getting it's, getting its own musical culture, a new musical culture. It's not about, High Life, which I love all the old African music, you know, all the, all the, you know the bloody drumming and the High Life and all those things. Fela
0: Kuti, stuff like
1: that. Fela Kuti's amazing. But now, but now they've got this electronic music and they've actually got 21st century African culture for a 21st century Africa. So it's it's changing fast. And I've got a friend actually who's in Uganda and he's always sending me, he runs a record label there. And he's always sending me bits of music and stuff. It's quite amazing to listen to it. It's quite fascinating. Mm. I know the enemy has been pushing all that um, new African pop stuff which i'm not so keen on actually i mean it's 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 interesting because it's well beating and one of those people you know one or two of those people are going to be huge michael jackson style big around the world but it's more it's more r&b really with slight african inflection to it so i've not really found a way into that stuff yet Mm. the the other stuff i'm really into
0: yeah so i mean what i can say is listeners can't accuse this show of just focusing on a small uh kind of subset of, of bands in the in the noughties you know here you're getting recommendations on <laughs> russian music dutch Ugandan electro and yeah what we'll do we'll put but, some links in but, the description yeah for, we'll do that
1: i'll like do, do, do a spotify list if you want i'll do a little playlist
0: we'll, in fact, but we'll but, do we'll, we'll do that. Yeah, big, we'll a playlist let's pick
1: up that, that small subsection of bands in the north as well because it's a subsection of bands that's it's the media never go on about i mean it always it always makes me laugh that way that, that Cortina's can sell forty thousand tickets in five minutes with no radio play, no press, and it it's like they're they're actually bigger than the radio. And I think mm. there's that weird kind of story to me. That's you know these the Dutch bands they're like the folk music of Hollywood. I don't mean you know folky folky folk, 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 but I mean the folk the, the music of these times. You know the electronic music in Africa is that folk music of these times, and I think the northern kind of lab like bands, what better words, are the folk music of the North, aren't they? You know, that's
2: mm, how mm. people
1: in the North express themselves and reflect their environments in song, and, and they're equally valid, you know, and, and some of these bands are so so uncool, but, you know, like Shed Seven are a band, they, 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 you know, they, they're always like the laying ducks, really, of that period, but I, you see them live now, and they're actually a kick-ass rock and roll band, Mm. How, how, how does that happen?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we'll uh, yeah, we'll put together a playlist of those those tracks to check check out. And yeah, listeners, we want to know what you make of it. So you can get in touch with the show on demotakespod at gmail.com, demo on Twitter and Instagram. And you want to get me, it's Rick underscore J underscore Martin. And before you go, John, do you want to give us your social details and what your website and all that? Yeah, well the website's
1: larger than war.com. My Instagram is JohnRob77, that's J-O-H-N-R-O-B-B-7-7. So is my uh, Twitter. So just come and find me and say hello. Yeah.
0: And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a, a complete hurricane of a, of a two-hour chat, John, but uh, as <laughs> always, but really enjoyed it. So, yeah, thanks for coming on.
1: No, thanks, Rick. Good to see you again. Yeah, yeah.
0: and, uh, yeah, listeners, we'll I guess normal service will uh, will resume next week. And, yeah, we'll see you on the next episode.